Hello, everybody, and welcome to another GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say to the people. Hey, everybody. So, this is the podcast dedicated to reviewing Game of Thrones episodes, reviewing them uh, both in the context of the greater series. So, spoiler alert, if you're listening for the first time, we are going to talk about later episodes. And within the context of the books, because both Spencer and I like the book. Spencer is a book nerd. I read the books twice. You've, you've gone to how many conventions now, which are primarily dedicated to book listeners, and had me drag you to how many individual room-sized panel conferences to discuss book material at said conventions? I think you qualify, sir. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. We did, we, But, you know, like sidebar here before you get going, we should do some of those panels this year. We're professional podcasters. You know, we could qualify, and there's many subjects that we, as proven by this show, we can find things to talk about for three hours. We don't need much as a basis to just yammer for it much longer than we saw some of those panels run. <laughs> okay, but we digress. This episode um, is dedicated to reviewing Season 1, Episode 2, titled The King's Road. Uh, if you've been following us for a while, we did Season 7 first. That was some hope uh, of prepping you, getting you refreshed a little bit for the upcoming Season 8 that is coming, I hear, at some point, Spencer. Uh, I've not gotten any verification of that. And then we decided, well, let's go back to Season 1. Both Spencer and I really like Season 1. And if you listen to our last episode, you probably got that in spades because it was really about two and a half hours of cheerleading an episode. Uh, but we love Season 1. We love... You know, seeing uh, the the places and people of A Song of Ice and Fire on the screen for the first time, we think season one holds to the books the closest, which I think is a pretty good move, especially when you're first getting going. And it had just has just some some really shocking moments. Spencer, anything you want to say about season one before we get going on this episode? Well, I'll actually offer a commentary on season eight just to finish up that point. That I really appreciate that the show producers have decided to give the show watchers an authentic book experience and offering the next bit of material in an unseen and undetermined point in the future. I really appreciate that they've really melded together the communities in that regard. I think they probably were tired of being told that the later seasons of the show are fan fiction, and so he's like, "No, we understand the author. Okay, let me show you. We are giving you the authentic JRM experience now." Are you happy? But it, you got to think it's going to go past that initial April date because we still haven't heard. And I think there's still a lot of uncertainty in post-production about it. So I don't know, man. I think we might we, we might be in for a wait here. I think it's strategic. I think they want to try to wait it out as long as possible so then they have a shorter delay before the next show starts. Yeah. I mean, definitely could be. Um, but I, I don't know, man. I just feel like it's starting to get ridiculous. These are only six episodes. We know they're working. That's an advantage over over George R. R. Martin for the last book. We know they're at least putting. They've at least traveled to locations and filming has occurred. That's progress. Damn, shitting on Martin. Not a wild cards fan. I, <laughs> I'm willing to bitch on all topics at all times. That's what you have me here for. Hey, have you read any of the wild card series? You know, at a certain point, I'm almost going to feel obliged to do so because he seems to care more about them than he does about this. Maybe they're good. I don't know. So I'm not going to spoil it here, uh, but I did do, you know how I like to read books. I like to Wikipedia and say I read it. <laughs> yes. I'm aware. Uh, the premise of the wildcard books are pretty cool. So I postulate this for those that don't know on the Manga uh, Talks podcast channel, we have another podcast called Mangum Reads. And this is where Spencer and our friend BJ review either a short story or a book uh, on a weekly basis. I say you should do wildcards. No, no, not even kidding. Like the first wildcards novel. I mean, you and, you and BJ could read it in like three hours. Like, just knock it out. I think it would be really good, and it would be a nice tie-in to the constant criticism we give George R. R. Martin on this show. 
you know, I'm always willing to mix those two worlds together. I'll broach it and we'll see where we go. <laughs> okay. Do you want to get in the episode? Let's talk about it. Okay, so the way we structure these podcasts is I do a recap. Spencer will offer insightful commentary during said recap. Then we'll go to a little segment we call Best Line of the Episode. I and I alone choose Best Line of the Episode. Now, Spencer, um, we've been getting a little bit of criticism on Best Line of the Episode. Have you heard this? Actually, no. What have they been throwing our way? Uh, we've gotten the, the, the comment um, through the www.mangumtalks.com upper right hand corner contact us form just go there upper right hand corner click contact us uh, let us know what you're you're thinking about the show uh, m- multiple people have have posited we should change it to best segment because apparently we're not sticking to a single line anymore a line is a broad term it is true we've had individual lines that stretch over the course of paragraphs but when a character is delivering a monologue where are you going to cut them off I, I don't know. I, I disagree, but I'm just I'm just giving you that feedback. But anyway, that's the second segment. And then the third uh, is something we call Book Nerd Bitching. Our certified card carrying book nerd Spencer brings up a few topics that, as a book reader, uh, he is frustrated about with the show. Now, in the last episode, Spencer, you really kind of struggled to complain. And I think that's because it was almost <laughs> word for word from the book. I offered commentary. I offered commentary, and I offered my personal views on certain changes that have made and that I either was very much in favor of or mildly disagreed with. It's going to be hard for me to bitch much about something I adore, but I'm going to endeavor to try harder this episode. Mm, well, you do it about me all the time, so. You're easy. This one, this one takes effort. <laughs> okay, well, that's how we're going to structure this. Let's get into the recap. So we start with no cold opening this episode. If you remember, season one, episode one had a cold opening, which is pretty rare for the, the series. This jumps right into the, the grandiose music of Raymond Duvaldi. Uh, nothing to really note on the uh, the intro. I, I didn't see anything. I mean, King Bobby B really is the king this season, so it's appropriate that the stag is over King's Landing. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it is it is nice that this early in the show, it, the uh, particular images that were being depicted in the little clockwork world are actually the places we're going to see this episode. So it it, it is nice to have have it have a bit of a predictive effect in a way the later shows kind of forgot about. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so then we cut to the first uh, scene. It's Essos. And it looks like Danny is really not enjoying the horse riding. <laughs> she looks despondent, uh, not happy. She does look like she's not feeling particularly well. We get we get a little bit more on that in a scene later. Um, and the dulcet tones of Sir Jorah Mormont comes up. You need to drink, child. And Jorah gives her horse, what a, like, some sort of jerky. And she's like, is there anything else? She's clearly been eating this jerky for a while. Jorah says the Dothraki have two things in abundance, grass and horses. You can't eat grass. So the assumption here is this is horse jerky. She's, she's just eating horses, which uh, doesn't seem to like that. Yeah, she clearly is an, or even mixed between unhappy and impassive that she is just running on for these first couple episodes. Um, but crossing the Dothraki Sea has clearly not been her most ideal way to spend a day. No, and then it cuts to, I guess they come to camp, and they take uh, the handmaidens, I guess, the Dothraki handmaidens, whatever. The, are, are they called handmaidens, or is there another name for them? I believe they refer to as her handmaidens, yeah. Okay. Uh, take her off the horse, and you, she's looking down at her arms and her legs, and it seems like she's ridden them raw, uh, mm-hmm. probably because she's not used to riding a horse for eight hours <laughs> uh, in a uh, humid time, uh, climate. Yeah, we don't have much of a frame of reference to say that she even necessarily rode a horse 
much if at all before now spending days on end. She is probably one large open wound that will eventually blister. Yeah, it's not good. But my question for you is, wouldn't Viserys be at least similarly hurting? Maybe not as much. I'm sure he probably rode. But the length that they're insinuating here that they rode, the Kalasar Road, I would think that Viserys would show some sign of not feeling well. But he's just poking around, man. He, he doesn't seem any worse for wear. He doesn't seem any worse to wear, which may be a certain degree of pride, and that he doesn't want to—he doesn't want—he doesn't want to show it. He wants to represent a certain degree of strength, and as you said, it may just be a, a greater level of experience. I mean, he was old enough that he probably was uh, trained in horseback riding before he even left Westeros, much less when he has uh, now been roaming around the Seven Kingdoms looking for support for his roaming around the, the free cities looking for support for his cause. Yeah, and you make a good point about the age of Viserys, uh, because if you're going by the books. Him and Danny aren't that particularly close in age. Um, Danny was born um, in Westeros, but literally left like that night. Like it was like right away. And Viserys was getting around, as you point out, he was probably riding a horse. But I feel like the way that the actors they casted here, I was not buying that Viserys was that much older than Danny. Yeah, they're playing a little bit fast and loose in terms of the ages because they're not clearly having to establish much of anything about that. I'm actually looking it up right now. Viserys was born in 276. Danny was born in Eldershay. She was born in 284. So yeah, he's uh, eight years older than she is. So he's, he's, def he's definitely distinctly older. Yeah, and I'm not buying that with these these actors. But anyway, nah. uh, it's, a, it's a good point, though, um, that he, he probably has a lot more uh, writing experience than her. I just thought he would probably be hurting, too. Um, well, and Jor Jorah comes up and tries to give him an out, possibly possibly on that basis. But uh, Viserys doesn't seem inclined to hear it. No, no. Um, and then also, like, during that conversation, this is the, the part that I want to talk about. So Jorah does come up and he talks to Viserys. And it's, I mean, Ian Glenn acts this so well from mm -hmm. Jump Street, because right away you can tell he has no respect for Viserys. And it's no. like he's just... It's, and he's like so northern in that respect, right? Because he's just holding it in. It's almost like uh, in the last episode we talked about when Ned meets Cersei. Um, not meets, but like sees her again after a while. Uh, there, <laughs> it was pretty obvious that Ned is not a fan. He could barely hold that in. And it's interesting too because Viserys is very much trying to garner Jorah's loyalty. He's trying to say everything that Viserys would think Jorah wants to hear. That. Hey, that once we come back, that won't even be a crime again. I got your back. And George looking yeah. at this going, I'm shamed myself and my family by what occurred. I'm unhappy it happened, but I'm mostly unhappy at myself. And you whoa, whoa, whoa. clearly don't get that, you incompetent. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. Let's do good radio. So here's the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, George is talking to Viserys, and Viserys asked why Ned Stark wanted to execute him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jorah explains... Or no, I think Viserys about like had half the story, right? Because he was like, something about slavery? Slavery or something? Mm -hmm. And he goes, Jory explains that he actually sold men into slavery uh, who were poachers on his land. And Viserys just sort of scoffs and goes, oh, my reign, you won't be punished for not, such nonsense. And, and Spencer, you tell me if I'm reading this incorrectly, but it looks like Jorah was, kind of gives him a look like, no, I should have been punished. Like... <laughs> I mean, it's both both a look of that, which is a decided difference between Jorah book and show. That this Jorah seems to be honestly ashamed by his own past and trying to improve himself to a degree. It's also probably in recognition that the guy who's trying to be king of Westeros 
just scoffed at the oldest and most sacred law of Westeros. Slavery is not just illegal. It is a cultural taboo everywhere in Westeros. It, when, when Ned went to go execute Jorah, it's not because he personally disliked the guy or felt that he needed to aggressively enforce the law. It's been a law in the book since the wall went up. That's what we're talking about here. And Viserys well, is just casually brushing it aside. Yeah, and all the evidence we have is that the Starks had a, a lot of respect for the Mormonts. So I would imagine this was a tough thing for Ned to do. But yeah, you're, it's a solid point. Shout out to you, Spencer. Uh, slavery is not just a thing that like the North doesn't like. Like it's it's abhorrent in the in the Seven Kingdoms when we are dropped into this world. And so, uh, for, yeah, for Viserys, I mean, he's just so tone deaf. It's like he has zero instinct for politics because this is probably something he would say to like anybody in Westeros, not knowing that it would affect his popularity. And I, I love that uh, as he, you know, calmly prances off, Jorah just looks off at him and just sighs. It was just like, oh, this is who I've chained my horse to right now, isn't it? <laughs> He's no King Bobby B. Uh, anything good. else on this scene? No, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, we jump the entire way halfway across the world for the next scene. To Winterfell. And really funny scene here to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Tyrion wakes scene. up in a kennel with dogs and like the dogs are like aggressively snuggling him which is like i don't even know that that probably was just something those dogs did on set but it's hilarious and he looks up and he's doing that sort of drunk morning after uh stumble trying to get up get his balance and who's watching him but uh prince joffrey and the hound sandor clegane <laughs> now, joffrey gets in probably his best line of the series which i'll give him credit for that yeah, fire it away. Uh, better looking bitches than you're used to, Uncle. <laughs> Admittedly. No, I think he probably sat there for like an hour looking down at Tyrion saying, I need a good line. I need a good line. I need a good line. And after about an hour of pondering, that's what he came up with. But still, credit, credit. It was it was a funny line. Um, I had you do it because you work blue. I don't. Uh, I think Thank people you. who listen to this podcast know that. Now, uh, Tyrion gets a certain amount of revenge for that line in short order. He does indeed. Tyrion immediately, which is funny. It's like, this is just like the sort of magic of Hollywood, right? But Tyrion wakes up with the dogs. He was so drunk the night before he slept in a kennel. And he clearly is frazzled when he gets up and immediately launches into this holier than thou like instruction to Joffrey saying that he needs to go and show his sympathies to the Starks, that his presence has already been noted. Joffrey's, you know, as he is wont to do, confused about why humans would feel such emotions. And Tyrion just starts slapping him. Um, here's my question to you. He slaps him, like, I think I counted three times. Yeah, uh, one cheek and then the other. And I love the hound literally just looking away going, oh, I got to protect this kid, but I'm not seeing it. Not right. seeing it happen. Well, but that's In my background. point, is that Tyrion, that Peter Dinklage acts this as if this is a common occurrence. Like, I'm just teaching yeah. him a lesson like I normally do. And the hound kind of treats it at least initially, like it's not unprecedented, but Joffrey looks aghast. So yeah, Joffrey, I just don't, I, I just don't know. Like, is this something that Tyrion has done before? Is it the first time he ever broke out the slap? I, I'm inclined to think no, because Joffrey looks too shocked at it happening. I mean, when he hits him the first time, Joffrey doesn't even know how to respond to it. He's utterly speechless that Tyrion just struck him right there. The Hound is pretty impassive to it. Tyrion just does it as a thing he's going to do, but Joffrey's reaction suggests to me that this is something new. And I wonder why Tyrion would choose, you know, the Stark boy getting hurt 
as the line in the sand for now. This is the, this is the time I need to slap my nephew. Uh, and there's a line later on that he has a special place in his heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Perhaps uh, Joffrey's so flippant remark with respect to it uh, personally offended him. Could be, but you're going to have to stop reading off my notes if we're going to finish this podcast. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> uh, but he said, uh, you know, this this happens and Joffrey runs off. And uh, the Hound, who is, you know, like for all his faults, he's pretty wise. And he, I think he just has a lot of common sense because he clearly hasn't had like a lot of formal education, but he just kind of reads situations well because he just goes, the prince will remember that, little lord. And Tyrion, little too, little bit too much confidence here. I hope so. If he forgets, be a dog and remind him. And it's interesting when he walks off because there's almost a look on his face that he's appearing, trying to appear, you know, happily indifferent, just, you know, constantly operating at about a 0.03 blood alcohol level. <laughs> but there's Shout some out. concern that bleeds in as if he just kind of like suddenly realizing it. Oh, shit, I did just strike the prince, didn't I? Huh. Well, that's another thing I have to deal with. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a good catch because, yeah, Peter Dinklage definitely acts it that way. Well, he walks into the Great Hall where, by my count, go ahead. I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. Uh, well, you have me like gunshot now. Like I missed a couple <laughs> things last episode. So every sure. time I hear you like breathe heavy, I'm like, oh, what? What, what do I do? Go on, man. You're doing great. Thanks. So Tyrion walks into the Great Hall, which by my count has Cersei, Jaime, Tommen, and Marcella there having breakfast. Uh, Tyrion walks in very confidently, starts shouting out his breakfast order. Now, as established on this podcast, I really love the focus of food in Game of Thrones. I love that George R. R. Martin does it. I have the Game of Thrones cookbooks. I regularly cook out of them. So I obviously took note of his breakfast order. Spencer, do you remember it? Uh, I it's uh, I know where there were what was it eggs and a couple of those little fishies. So you're very close, and it actually sounds like a really good breakfast to me. Bread, two of those little fish, which it, it, from the the book you know are little fried uh, fish, mm-hmm. and a okay, mug of like dark this. and a mug of dark beer to wash it down, mm-hmm. and bacon burned black. That's a pretty good That's breakfast. Right. That's pretty good I, breakfast. I would eat that. I would eat that breakfast happily. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Well. Um, Tyrion gets up and uh, he informs Cersei that the maester, which presumably is Maester Lewin, believes that Bran may live. And Jamie and Cersei exchange these glances uh, and Cersei indicates, well, maybe it would be better to let him die. To which Tyrion flatly responds, responds <clears throat> only the gods know for certain. All the rest of us can do is pray. Now, you know, we'll, we can continue to talk about this through this scene. But the way Tyrion is talking to Cersei and Jaime, he is very skeptical of them in this whole process. Mm-hmm. And, and I think right that that line from Tyrion is the first time we saw it. And I love that he's how carefully he's watching their reaction too after he says these lines. Before he clearly meant the first line to poke them, to challenge them, to then see how they're going to react once he said that shocking thing. Because it immediately cuts to two of them, Cersei and Jaime, staring at each other, and then cuts to Tyrion watching their eyes. He clearly has his suspicions and wanted to poke this issue and see where it goes. That's the kind of little finger in him to a certain degree that he likes to create a bit of conflict and just see what he can learn from it. Yeah, and it's it's uh, again I like I just like how Peter Dinklage acts this character because he's like he's eating bacon and pretending to look down, but if you watch closely, he is looking up at both of them, and I'm right. not sure they notice because they do shoot each other a pretty obvious look. No, they don't, and it shows how poor they are. How poor they both are at this Game of Thrones so far that they exchange such an obvious, revealing glance. 
And have no clue that they just revealed that to their brother, or at least don't deem him enough of a threat to care. Right. And, well, then we get just like a little sort of human moment where Tyrion is just messing with Tommen and Marcella. Right. Um, I love the interaction with Tyrion and Tommen and Marcella. I like it in the show. I liked it in the books. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I just think it it creates a, a warmness uh, in, the, in the Tyrion character that I'm not sure you would get many other places because he has to be so antagonistic with most of his family or people he interacts with, yeah, at least in the first book. It's a wonderfully revealing moment that as much as he, as much we hear that his family hates him, that he ends up being an enemy of his family, at this moment, right here, right now, at this table, his little nibblings adore him. They're just delighted to his preference. And even Jamie, who's visibly trying to hold things wherever else, cannot help smiling as Tyrion starts to go on his little routine in front of the family. Is a, of this room, only one of his family members clearly hates him, and she definitely clearly hates him, but the rest are very much in his camp. You're right. He's one in the room. Um, and I love, I love early season one, Jamie Tyrion interaction. Uh, we'll cover it more in later scenes, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then Cersei just sort of like out of nowhere, just throws shade on Tyrion for wanting to go to the wall. I don't have the quote in front of me. Uh, Spencer, do you? I actually didn't write it down, but yeah. Uh, it's something along the lines of like, that's, that's ridiculous even for you. Uh, she just cannot imagine why he would ever want to go even farther north, which which at this point, she's way farther north she ever wanted to go, to go see this structure that people say exists. And it, it, to her, it's probably all snarks and grumpkins, right? I, I do. I did write down the line that then Jamie asked immediately afterwards of where he says, I know it's, a, it's one of the largest things that man have ever built. Of course, I'd want to see it. And Jamie looks at him with a half, his half Jamie smile that he's got on his face for every one of the scenes he's in. Just says, tell me you're not planning on taking the black. And Tyrion responds, and go celibate? The horrors would go begging from Dorne to Casterly Rock. No, I just want to stand on top of the wall and piss off the edge of the world. And that is just Tyrion embodied this stage of the boxing series. Yeah, so we're, we're doing the thing that people don't want us to do, which is just to repeat the lines. But I'm going to do it anyway because my podcast. So right before the... So the <laughs> Damn the line, straight, man. Be strong. Absolutely. I'm, I'm standing strong. And it, we're, we may go two and a half hours, too. So just be ready for it. So the line that you truncated before then, I, I called out because I really liked it. Where's your sense of wonder? The greatest Man. structure ever built. The intrepid men of the Night's Watch. Mm-hmm. The wintry abode of the White Walkers. Which I liked because it, it, it you know, gives you a little bit of indication of Tyrion's character, right? He's just like interested in things. He's like, look, this is one of the, the, the wonders of the world. Of course I want to go see it. But then it also tells you, okay, the story of the White Walkers is told it's lore in westeros right even to southerners for good reason too i mean the watches the uh, watch and the uh, wall have stood for beyond simply recorded history they have stood from before there was a written word to write history down in westeros it'd be like going to see the pyramids in egypt you can't not see them if you have an option yeah, I mean, and, and that's why, like, I, I pointed that line out, because I think me and you are on the same page here, but I don't think certainly all humans are, right? But, like, we would go, are you kidding me? Like, I'm this close to the wall? Of course I have to go see it. I, I would not have a choice in the matter. I would hate myself forever if I lost that opportunity behind. But clearly, Cersei is not in that camp. Clearly, as we pointed out last episode, she feels visibly lessened and hurt that she even has to be in the north for another day. She, she's offended she has to, to, to breathe their air. Um, yeah. But then the, the Cersei and the children leave uh, after Tyrion drops the, and goes celibate? 
line uh, because Cersei says something along the lines of the children don't need to hear your filth. And then Jamie kind of, his voice gets a little lower and he's basically like, I'm being serious with you now, Tyrion. Even if the boy lives, he'll be a cripple, a grotesque. Give me a good clean death any day. Irony. Tyrion says, Irony. I know, right? Like, it, so many tone deaf lines. Like, why would you say that to your brother who is a little person? Like, obviously, he's going to associate himself with the cripple, the grotesque, and he does immediately. Speaking for the grotesque, I have to disagree. Death is so final. We're, oh, oh, life is full of possibilities. Oh, the boy does wait. A cr- be very oh. interested to hear what he has to say. It, it's a great line, and then which Jamie then challenges his loyalties, to which Tyrion responds very truthfully, you hurt me, brother. You know how much I love my family. Which is another... So here... Yeah, go mm-hmm. ahead. No, it's another, it's another great and very revealing line. Uh, one of the things I also meant for the irony, too, is that there are several lines over the course of this that are going to come back to haunt characters about hmm, three, four seasons from now. Because old Jamie's going to have a bit of an issue with being crippled and has to determine whether he's going to want to live with that or not in a few seasons. Ah, yeah. He, he certainly wasn't signing up to die after he lost his sword hand. Spoiler alert. Now, here's my question for you, Spencer, is mm-hmm. what do you think Tyrion actually suspects here? Uh, because we get a lot of evidence during this scene that he does suspect that Jamie and Cersei somehow had something to do with Bran. But I'm wondering just to what level. Why? Like He would have to start connecting dots and trying to do some level of causation, right? And be like, well, if they did try to kill the boy, why would they? Well, it, it's inter- it's an interesting thing to debate about who actually does know about Jamie and Cersei in the first place. Are we inclined to believe that uh, Tyrion at least has his suspicions in that regard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would bet he probably knows at this point only because he's a very um, he's a very deliberate and uh, a very thoughtful person. He notices things around him. Uh, we mm-hmm. get that right away in the show. We get it even more so in the books, I would say. Uh, so it, it's hard for me to believe that he wouldn't notice that. I fully much agree with that. And so I don't know whether he's necessarily connecting those dots, but what suspicions he might have, well, those can run those can run range pretty far. Pretty far. Yeah, I agree. Uh, anything else with this scene? Uh, no, I think that finishes that one up. Uh, where do we jump from here? I'm trying to remember. Is it a Catelyn scene from here? Put put a point on the board for Terry. It's a uh, Cat- okay, I was playing kind. It's a Catelyn scene where she's making a charm over Bran's bed. Don't mess with me, sir. Actually, my name is Lee on the podcast. Let me back that up. I, I point on the board so- for Lee. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. Hey, hey. I'm just going to reveal then that I was trying to be nice right there, that this is actually a scene that's immediately cutting to Cat making a charm over Bran's body. Don't mess with me. <laughs> okay, I got pretty good quotes here too. I'll battle back. Cersei walks into Bran's room. Cat is by his side, like you say, uh, making some sort of craft. And Cersei, this is what is low key really funny to me about this scene because I think that they were trying to humanize Cersei here. Mm-hmm. She showed some level of like emotion and she started talking about some very interesting things that we'll go into. Um, but here's what I took from it Cersei immediately made it about herself. Like, she just immediately starts talking about herself. Like, oh, well, I actually lost my first boy. A black-haired beauty. Not a thing in the books. Uh, let me finish Let me finish the interaction, and then we'll, we'll go back to that. Robert was crazed. Beat his hand bloody on the wall. All the things men do to show you they care. Which is a good line, because men do actually do that. Uh, and Cersei says she'll be praying to the mother for Bran. Perhaps this time she'll listen. Spencer, before we get back into the black-haired beauty, do you think Cersei's telling the truth here? 
Do you think when she's actually going to pray for Bran? When we first saw this scene the very first time, I very much assumed that Cersei was lying as to every aspect of it. I very much assumed that she was just making up a story so as to ingratiate herself to Catelyn so that she can be closer for whatever else she may have planned to do in the future. So when I first walked this, I assumed every aspect of it she was lying. Knowing later that the little black-haired child, at least in the show, actually did exist, I don't know actually whether she's lying or not. We have inclination to, to believe, well, we have grounds to know that Cersei has a special place in her heart for children, especially her own. Truth. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, so I don't think we know. I think there's the insinuation here is that there's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, that she is, yeah, she is connecting it to real emotion with herself. But, you know, logically, if you had to actually get an answer out of her, she probably really doesn't want Brand to live um, for self interest. But I, I do think that she's having a bit of a moment here as much as she can. Anything else you want to talk about between the interaction before we talk about this black-haired beauty, this first child of Cersei's? And I would say that my ultimate interpretation of this scene is that the best lies have a foundation in truth. I don't think she's being in any way fully honest about her motivations and emotional response to Catelyn, but I think she's using a certain degree of truth to make it that much more effective. Spencer, shout out to you. That was really good insight because maybe... maybe what's really going on here is she's not actually being like a human. She's such a good liar that she has to do this. She's got to connect it with something from her own life. So that's believable. Perfectly possible. And I think a reasonable interpretation of what we're saying. Okay. So, um, this is, we're going to touch on the book canon here, but Cersei casually mentions that her first boy, uh, had black hair and that he died when he was young. This is not a thing in the books, and it's important for a lot of reasons. Uh, Spencer, do you want to take this away? Yeah, I'll talk about I'll talk about this some now. I was maybe going to recommend this one for book nerd bitching, but it merits discussing. Of that, it is a very, very, very important aspect of Cersei's character that all of her children had blonde hair, to the point that the one time she even believed that she got pregnant by Robert, she got an abortion to make sure it didn't happen. She. In the, sh- in the show, it's a, a big, it's one of the things that reveals very early that the show is going to go in a very different route with respect to Cersei than the books did. And I, in some ways, admire their ambition that they're willing to so early suggest that they're going to send her in a different direction. Because Cersei despises Robert from the moment of their wedding night. The first moment that she crawls, that he crawls up on top of her and calls her Lyanna, she hates him forever after in their relationship. That, I mean, he gives her in many ways many grounds to hate to, uh, hate him over the course of it. But the idea on the show that they had a child, that she loved him for a long time, even after they lost their first child, which is a wonderful scene later in, is entirely different from what her character plays out to be that she is actively despising him and immediately turning to jamie as the alternative from day one i'm curious what your thoughts about what this small change right here represents about how they're ultimately changing cersei's character because i think you would agree that the cersei on the show is both a much more sane and a much more well-rounded character than how she comes across in the books would you say that's true 
I would. Uh, and I would say that, uh, and I actually wrote down the question, why did D&D make this change? I got two answers for you. One is I think it makes uh, Cersei, the character, more compassionate. And they mm-hmm. did get a pretty good get with the actress, Lena Headley. So they probably were like, hey, like, we want to make her prominent on the show. We want to make her a... Uh, a major character where she certainly is not as major of a character in the books. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I would say is that a, a, a relationship between two prominent characters, King Bobby B and Cersei is more interesting. If they did have a period where at least one of them actually loved each other, if it was as simple as they always hated each other, that's there's no context there. That's boring. How do actors act around it? But right. by having that little change where Cersei had this brief period, there was something in her that did like him at one point. Well, then you have more for the actors to play on. And it results ultimately in what I would say is honestly one of the best scenes in the entire series. I mean, like, probably when episode six or seven coming up of the two of them sharing a moment together. And yep. as you said, it's a key aspect of them making them both larger characters in the show than they ever were in the books. Robert's not much more of a bit character. We never see we never see through his eyes. We only see the perspective on him, I guess, pretty much exclusively through Ned. And so we never really see much of a chance to develop him. Cersei is a mystery for three books until she becomes a uh, point of view character. And by that point, her level of sanity and competence has threaded to the point of absolutely nothing. What's interesting, though, is that because they made this change so early, how it reverberates later in other ways, that to make her a more rounded character, to make her more human, to make her a more major and likable person, they inherently had to change other characters to make that actually seem reasonable. One thing, as you pointed out, to make it that she and Robert had a period of a loving relationship, they had to make Robert a more likable character in some ways, because it's pretty much clearly stated in the books that Robert was physically abusive to Cersei when he was drunk. That she talks about for a period of years that the nights that he would come to her bed drunk, he would hurt her. Argue, one could debate intentionally or not, he would always try to defend himself that he was drunk and didn't remember, but she despises him for that. To the point that one scene when she even confronts him and he offers that excuse and even continues on drinking, she breaks his tooth when she th- throws a cup at him in the process. So... They had to remove several aspects of that character. There's a scene later on, a couple episodes now, where Robert strikes her, and it's strongly implied it's like the first time he ever hit her. Oh, yeah. That's not... Uh, <laughs> that's not that's very not. That's very not in the books. So they had to change Robert to make him more likable, which makes the scene between the two of them all the more magical, is that we actually do like Robert, and he's a more rounded character on the show than he ever was in the books. They also had to dilute and change some of the other characters that are around her who oppose her. Um, a key character later in the books and later in the show is Kevin Lannister, uh, who is her uncle and who very much forms a Lannister camp in opposition to her in the books, where he actually eventually becomes the Hand of the King and effectively the leader of the realm when Cersei's knocked out of the picture. That was cut almost entirely from the show because Cersei's been a more major character and Cersei's more competent. And so she wouldn't fall off the same way that she does in the books and wouldn't need him to essentially try to put the pieces desperately back together. Tyrion is portrayed in the last season as being less competent because Cersei's now been brought up as a chess master who can match wits with Tyrion and duel with him successfully in a way I think you might agree she practically never could in the books, other than maybe out of just sheer viciousness. Absolutely not, no. So it's fascinating to try to ponder that when you make a small change like this in adaptation early on, just with respect to a single line, an offline about a prior child, seemingly irrelevant, to make that work in an intelligent, well-done adaptation, it's amazing how much else you have to change over the course of an extended series. And 
for most of the time, I think they've done pretty well with it, though I do begrudge some of the losses that we've necessarily sustained to keep this revised view of Cersei as a character. Whew, that was a little little aside book nerd bitching here in the recap. Good work, Spencer. Uh, we cut to John. Uh, John Snow is at the blacksmith getting a very small looking sword forged. And Jamie comes up. Now, this interaction is really funny through the context of season seven, um, where John is uh, absolutely on a par with the power level of Jamie, if not more, as the king of the north. And then later in the season, uh, as an ally with the most powerful person in uh, Westeros or Essos. Uh, but not here. In this scene, he's Jamie Lannister. He's Lord Commander of the King's Guard. He's known the realm over. And he, John is just Ned Stark's bastard. And Jamie treats him just that way. Um, he asks John if uh, he's ever actually fought. Uh, meaning, have you ever actually used a sword on a person? Which John hesitates. So Jamie knows that that's, he hasn't. Jamie drops this line. Strange thing. First time you cut a man, you realize we're just sacks of meat, blood, and some bone to hold it all up. He's over-the-top condescending in this scene. He even does the uh, the presidential, what we call now the presidential handshake, the Trump thing, where he shakes your hand and he yanks you in. Yep. Uh, he does that to him. Uh, and all of this just makes me really pumped to see the two of them interact in season eight, if they do. I'm not sure that they will, but if they do, it's got to be so interesting because the last time they saw each other, spoiler alert, it's the last time they see each other, um, it, the power dynamic is so different and Jamie's such a turd. It's interesting looking at this episode in retrospect, because it's like seven or eight times over the course of this episode that you realize, huh, that's the last time those two are going to see each other, isn't it? It's just yeah. fascinating to ponder. But I love, love how different emotionally these two characters are in this particular scene. Where Jamie is about, I don't know, about 60% swagger, about 30% mocking bravado, and about 10%, you know, glowing, flowing locks of hair. Meanwhile... John is just so shell-shocked that the friggin' Jamie Lannister is talking to me that he just has a gormless expression on his face the entire conversation. <laughs> He's just trying desperately to keep up and make sense. As you say, yeah. when the two of them run into each other now, I will love to see the tables turned as Jamie rides north, essentially a landless, lordless individual, as John is one of the most powerful rulers in the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it, it's really just... That's one the thing that's so fun about watching rewatching season one is that through the context of what happens later in the series, you have these little moments where you're like, huh, that's funny. That's huh. that's a little cringy considering what happens, but that's that's a funny little moment. So that was one of them. Then we cut to Arya's room. Arya is doing the world's worst job at packing. Um, Spencer, I don't know if you saw Maisie Williams try to fold a shirt in this scene. <laughs> The dog does a better job, honestly. The wolf, it's a little more than balling it up and looking at it confused and then just tossing it somewhere. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, John comes in and um, John says, hey, you got to help her. And Arya, very proud, says, watch, Nymeria, gloves. And then Nymeria just cocks her head and looks at her, clearly doesn't know what the heck she's talking about. John says, impressive. Arya says, shut up. <laughs> Which I, I love, love that little interaction. Yeah, I between love the these, two. these two. Have. I agree, completely agree. Um, John then gives Arya the sword that we saw him having forged with the Winterfell blacksmith. And the, this is kind of interesting to me. Is like it seems like John was able to get this sword forged completely on his own. 
And I just didn't know he had that kind of power with the Winterfell staff. That's an interesting point. I didn't really ponder. I mean, as Ned's bastard, I'm not sure what kind of cachet that would kind of bring with it. I mean, clearly Catelyn despises him and wants him involved in nothing, but I guess that doesn't bleed through to the rest of the staff in the castle. And it seems like the type of shit Cat would hate. She'd be like, are you what, on your own? You have forced a sword. You have given it to my daughter. She has not been trained to do this. It's very dangerous. I mean, I could just see Cat hauling off on him for this move. Yeah, I have to wonder, given that we know from this episode that Catelyn handles the accounting books, I'm having to wonder whether that blacksmith tries to put that under, you know, like spillage or something. You know, some metal that fell off the back of a cart rather than actually wrote down, write down made sword for Jon Snow. <laughs> or maybe Jon just like doesn't care because he knows he's going to the wall. <laughs> There's an element of that too. Who knows? Yeah, and then John looks at her, and uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta put this as potential line of the episode. First lesson: stick them with the pointy end. Yeah. Very sweet scene here between John and Arya. Last time they see each other before John goes to the wall. Oh. Uh, I am twelve out of ten sure that Arya and John will see each other again. Likely in episode one of season eight, because John and Danny are riding to White Harbor and then they're going to Winterfell. Um, and man, it's going to be Niagara Falls when I see that, Spencer. Oh, it's gonna my be, God, I'm going to have to watch that one alone. It's going to be great. And I hope that it's a moment which truly tries to humanize Arya again, is that truly her lodestone of the Stark family, the member of the Starks that she cared, member of her family she cared most about is back in her life. I'm hoping a lot of this, you know, Terminator edge that she's had now just falls away as she just becomes Arya again when she sees him. And just a, a, cr- a credit to the actors in this scene. We talked, you talked about last episode that Maisie Williams does such a wonderful job as, as a young girl Arya. In terms of every aspect of the character is just really perfect in terms of her moxie, her interactions with John. Kitty Harrington is still clearly learning a little bit in terms of how yeah. he's going to portray, portray John. I kind of mocked him a little bit. That he always kind of has this vaguely gormless expression when he doesn't know what to do in a scene. But in this moment when he's with Arya, it's just so naturally pleasant of how much they like each other, how much they care for each other. Um, makes for a really great scene. Agreed. I think we're going to get about 20 seconds, is my prediction. 20 seconds of Arya slipping back into season one Arya when she sees John and gives him a hug. And then there will be the vague look over John's shoulder when she sees Danny, and then she snaps right back. That's probably a reasonable bet. Yeah. See, I could have wrote that. Uh, okay. Then John says all the best swords have names, and Arya says she's going to name it Needle because Sansa can keep her so needles. Got a needle of my own, which I thought was pretty cute. I mean, it just it belies you know her nature. I mean, she she doesn't want to sew. She doesn't want to do that. Sansa things that Sansa does, um, but she views the things that she does as just important, just as important. So that's why she drew the parallel. Though this is my needle, Sansa. You have your needles. And we're gonna get a wonderful callback from the Hound about three seasons from now, which I'm gonna enjoy talking about when we get to it. That the Hound clearly disagrees with John on this point about what, about the naming of swords. That's some hella foreshadowing. <laughs> hey guys hang in there when we get three seasons from now spencer's got a good comment coming commit commit my friends <laughs> uh then john goes to say goodbye to bran and man is cat shooting him some serious daggers oh, in this yeah scene. oh, oh yeah god so a couple things i want to point out here uh is that john talks to bran and he talks to him in the way that you know if you have somebody in your life who has been permanently injured and you haven't come to grips with it yet. You just talk as if that hasn't happened. Yeah. And that's what John's doing. He's like, 
uh, he tells him, I wish you could be here when you wake up. I'm taking the black, but you can visit me in Castle Black when, when you're better, and I'll know what's what by then, and we can go walking out beyond the wall. It's interesting he says walking because the maester said the boy wouldn't walk again. So this is John who hasn't emotionally dealt with the fact that his brother now can't use his legs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's having, he's leaving probably forever. He needs to know that some things are still normal at home. He needs to know that there's a future between the two of them for their relationship in terms of them being able to see each other interact again. He needs this to be all right. And as you said, there's an element of delusion in how he describes it because this is a profoundly difficult moment for John. As excited as he is, as excited as he's going to finally accomplish the dream of the watch, he, even in his immature state, knows he's leaving his life behind. So he needs to know that there's still a life there to exist and function as he leaves it behind. Yeah. And then Ned walks in. You see him sort of in the foreground. And Cat um, looks up at John and says, I want you to leave. Now, here's a moment that I noticed. You tell me if you noticed it or if I'm completely crazy. And folks listening, if I am completely crazy, www.mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, contact us and tell me I'm crazy. Because I see John lean over and kiss Bran, and they cut back to Kat, and the faintest smile goes over her face. Hmm. I did not notice, but I have to go back and rewatch that now. I'm curious. Yeah, and it made me think that what they were doing there giving you just a little bit of she hates John but she likes that John loves Bran. Yeah. And I can understand that in terms of reaction. She despises John not because of John but because of what what he represents. But she appreciates anyone that's going to care for her kids. I mean she was probably uncomfortable with Cersei walking in the room but she seemed to respond well to her when she offered honest sympathy. So even John can fall in the same category. And that is the last time that John sees Cat, um, and that's all time in the show. Anyway, that's all time. Yeah. Um, then Ned closes the door. He sits on the bed, and Cat, through tears, says, "17 years ago, you rode off with Robert Baratheon. You came back a year later with another woman's son, and now you're leaving again." And the pain that Cat has all these years later, that Ned came back with a bastard. Just like, go ahead, Spencer, just go crazy with your Ned love because it just shows the sacrifice that Ned has has done for Liana and John's safety. And it's stunning that he was able to deal with the fallout of that cover-up for so long. And even now, you know, it's causing such tension with, with the woman that he loves. I mean, I think there's no question that Ned loves Kat. Um, it's, just a, it's just a heck of a sacrifice promise Ned make and the willingness he was to bear the uh, pain and torture of it is just beyond belief. Once once you know that Jon Snow not being his bastard is actually real, is actually canon, the level of respect you put together for Ned that he was willing to take that shame on himself, to shelter Jon, to shelter his sister, to protect him against the entire world is just shocking. You're left in awe of the man. It's just fascinating scene, too, to see Catelyn's feelings about it, because Catelyn loves Ned unconditionally. She can never blame him for what happens. And so I think the fact that she can't blame him or hate him for what occurred makes it all the more torturing for her. It's part of the reason that she hates Jon Snow so much is because her love for Ned is just so absolute. She could never think less of him 
as a result of this. And it just then just sits and simmers and tortures and inside because of it. So, yeah, it's her reaction in these moments. And Ned tries to offer some degree of defense that he didn't have a choice, but she's not in a mood to hear it right now. She snaps him down pretty quick when he offers that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that what you end up with is, I mean, a heck of a man in, in Ned. So uh, to, to, to take this on and to do it, knowing that if he were to ever backtrack on that promise or he was ever to tell someone the secret of Liana and Rhaegar or John's actual parentage, that John would, would likely be dead pretty quickly. Um, he's lying not only to his wife, he's lying to his closest friend, too. If Robert ever found out that Jon Snow was a Targaryen, how much life would Jon Snow have left in this world? Give me a number. How much would what do you think? How much would Ned? You've been you've been hiding a Targaryen from me the whole time. Oh yeah, not 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 that. I think Ned. Well, we know Ned voluntarily took that risk, but I don't think it's ever ever something he's willing to risk John's head on. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then we see John leave, and he's walking out, and he's packing, and he's talking to Rob. Um, Rob says he's saying goodbye to Brian. He's not going to die. I know it. Yet again, more of the Stark children who are just seemingly, uh, they haven't really accepted the fact that, that Brian's in a lot of trouble here. I don't think. Um, John fires back. You Starks are hard to kill. Interesting line because again, he's admitting he's not a Stark. Mm. Um, seems to be the other way around to me though. Uh, seemed like Rob wasn't particularly tough to kill. John, however, <laughs> He died, came back, still alive, season eight. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it seems to me the other way around. I think John's a little harder to kill. If we ever get to that point, I'm going to talk about the theory that Rob may have survived a little bit longer than we thought he did at the Red Wedding. But we got a long way to go before we ever reach that moment. Woo, more future season foreshadowing from Spencer. Uh, John lies and says that Cat was very kind. Um, and you see a final goodbye between Rob and John. And that is a final goodbye between Rob and John. <laughs> Another, another, another notch on the list. We got a few more to do before we're done. Mm -hmm. And then we see a force riding north. It looks like uh, kind of the tail end of the Lannister and uh, Baratheon forces. So the king is left, and you see a few Lannister men peel off with Tyrion, Benjen, Ned, and John. Here's what stuck out to me in this scene. Uh, so the few Lannister men who was accompanying Tyrion to the wall. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a pretty shit beat, right? I'm hoping they got hazard pay for that one because that well, hazard pay, or at least you know, time and a half. Because, they, yeah, they definitely drew the short straw with respect to that duty on that day. <laughs> it's interesting to me they didn't give him many troops. They gave him like three or four. Which, I mean, he is a Lannister. You would think he would get more than that. But um, yeah, those those guys had to be like, what the hell? Like, I gotta go up here with this guy uh, up to this super cold place. Uh, God knows when I'm getting back. Uh, then you have a conversation between John and Ned. And Ned tells him, you are a Stark. You might not have my name, but you have my blood. John says, my mother alive? Does she know about me? How I am? Where I'm going? Does she care? Ned says, next time we see each other, we'll talk about your mother. Iconic scene in the series, in the show, uh, in the books. Question for you, Spencer. Do you think that's true? Do you think that if... And let's say Ned had lived and he came and he took the black, right? Uh, like the plan was before Joffrey lost his mind and executed him. Do you think Ned would have told John the truth? Uh, I think yes. Because uh, A, I don't believe Ned ever, ever lies casually. I think the few, one of the few clear lies we ever have of Ned in this entire series is 
I don't, we don't even actually see him lie about John. We see him allow other people to think it's true. Um, so, yeah, I don't believe Ned's lying here for a couple reasons. One, it could be a long damn time before he sees John again. I mean, uh, Tywin Lannister ruled for like ten years as Hand of the King. It could be a long, it could be a long term, long term commitment to do this kind of job. Another thing, and this may be very strategic. He's sending John. John's going to the wall. Where the moment he arrives, yep. the moment he swears his vows, he's yep. forswearing all titles, claims, and lands. Mm-hmm. It is a reservoir. It is a safety place for bastards and former cl- and former claimants to crowns and, and uh, keeps. It is ideal for those various royal bastards to go and spend the rest of their lives there because they're essentially moving themselves out of the potential hierarchy and moving themselves out of a potential threat. So he may feel more comfortable with going to tell John what's going on with respect to his background once John essentially has the protection of those vows about him. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up, is that Ned's being a little more strategic here than I think the casual fan would give him credit for, because he's Mm -hmm. saying, uh, well, once you take the black, I can tell you, and you're not going to have the same risk. I mean, Ned likely knows there's a Targaryen at the wall right now. Yeah, almost certainly he does. Nobody's worried about it because he took the black. And he, and he did so intentionally to remove himself from the potential from being a potential claimant to the throne. There is a there is a tradition there. Okay, then we cut to on the King's Road. The uh, King and, and Ned. Small sad note: This is the last time Ned and John will see each other. That's true. That's a, yet another one. We just get like like three or four scenes right in a row of goodbyes. And we don't know it at this time. We did not know it when we first watched this. I certainly didn't think so. I thought Ned was like. The main character. I mean, I thought you just—it was a show about Ned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very much so. So the king and Ned are feasting. Uh, king's taking a piss. Uh, very on brand. Um, they turn around. They start reminiscing about old times. Robert pretty hilariously confuses one of his, I guess, tavern winches, as he puts it, Bessie, uh, with one of Ned's. And Ned was like, "She was one of yours, Robert." I don't even know if Robert remembers that it was one of hers. He just kind of takes his word for it and drops the line. Thank the gods for Bessie and her tits. Oh, such a Robert line. <laughs> such a delightful Robert line. That might be line in the episode. I don't know. It's a little blue for me, but I, I loved it. Um, Robert brings up Ned's, um, uh, you know, supposed lover, John's mom. Ned's demeanor completely changes, as you would imagine. Oh, yeah. uh, Ned names her as Wyla and bristles and uh robert was like basically you never told me about her and ned's like nor will i and robert says he's too hard on himself which i think we all know is true ned is too hard on himself um but in this moment i I guess he's acting because he he really didn't sleep with somebody named wyla that we know of Mm -hmm. we do know Um, wyla was a real person right in the books we know wyla is a real person but we're led to believe that ned did not have a sexual relationship with her no, pretty, I think pretty strongly suggested that she, if anything, was part was an agreed part of the cover story. Right. Uh, the king, uh, King Bobby B, uh, drops this line. I swear if I weren't your king, you'd have hit me already. Worst thing about your coronations, I'll never get to hit you again. I love that line. That's a great line. <laughs> yeah, but then, then Robert gives a little insight into what is that life is actually like here and i don't think ned knows this he hasn't seen him in what nine years or something since the uh great joy rebellion and robert says trust me that's not the worst thing and that's one of the first indications we get that robert 
is in a rough way. And, and really, Maester Lewin calls that out in the first episode. I'm like, hey, man, he came all the way up here to get you. You're like the last person he trusts. He must be in a tough spot. And he really is in King's Landing. He's in a tough spot. And it also shows that Robert, as much as he is a drunken buffoon, he's not dumb. He's very much aware of the problems. He's very much aware of the concerns. He's very much aware of how very tenuous his rule is. He's just not committed enough to do anything about it personally, other than find somebody that he trusts to try to fix it. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, Robert kind of gives you that, but then he, he passes a, a note to Ned. Um, it was a rider in the night. It was not a raven. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> trust Always it. a rider, rider in the night. In the night. Uh, that basically informs uh, Robert that Danny has married Khal Drogo. I wonder who could have sent that. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to it. Ned scoffs at the news. Um, says, should we get her a wedding gift? Robert suggests killing her, which makes Ned angry, which if you know what you know in later seasons about John, you understand it probably made him way more angry than he even let on here. Because basically what Robert, Robert is saying is if, you know, if he knew about John, he would he would want to kill John the same way he wants to kill Danny. Um, and then the interesting exchange here. Robert says, I'll kill every Targaryen I get my hands on. And Ned, almost in a defiant way, mm-hmm. says, you can't get your hands on this one, can you? And I felt like Who's he, he was 40%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was a little bit talking about John, right? Just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's important to point out that when... Tywin Lannister had the two young Targaryens killed and had their bodies presented before Robert as if they were a royalty feel, a royal fealty offering. That was one of the things that drove apart Rob and Ned's friendship there, uh, Robert and Ned's friendship for a period, of where Ned absolutely said, this has to be punished. This is a fundamentally awful crime that could not be just brushed aside. And Robert was okay with it because it was validating his rule and he was that angry about the Targaryens. So this has been a sticking point between Robert and Ned for a long time. This is just the latest recurrence of it. But as you said, Ned's feelings and protectiveness for John are bleeding into this conversation, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's dripping when you look at it in retrospect, but of course in the moment you could never have known. Um, then Robert seems to suggest that Cal Drogo has 100,000 men in his horde. Spencer, on this podcast, we've gone back and forth about how many Dothraki there is, how many uh, actual warriors there are, both in Danny's now Kalasar, which we're led to believe is pretty much all the Dothraki, or in Cal Drogo's Kalasar in season one, which we're led to believe is the biggest one, but not everybody. I feel like this $100,000, just, it just muddies the waters even further. 100,000 men, I'm sorry. Yeah, I feel like it's the biblical equivalent of doing 30 days and 30 nights. It's just they're saying a big number. They don't necessarily mean it literally. They don't necessarily mean it actually. They don't have the slightest clue. They're not counting heads. They're just saying it's massive. And 100,000 is a good way to say that. Yeah, Ned says it doesn't matter because they won't cross. And Robert's like, well, what the hell? What if they do? And Ned, a little bit of swagger here. We don't always get a lot of swagger from Ned. But he goes, if they do, we'll throw them back in the sea, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. He had that. He was like, yeah, bring it on. But, you know, in retrospect, Ned is probably wrong here. Robert does accurately predict how problematic a Dothraki army would be for a Westerosi army. Robert, if he's nothing else but a good battle commander. And I think he, he knows enough about the Dothraki to know if they ever get over here, they got a big problem. Yeah, I think I, I do believe fundamentally that Westeros could take them if they were united. But as Robert points out later, they're not. And that even if they could ultimately defeat them, it would be a hell of a slaughter before it happened. Right. Because, you know, 
Robert's like, we can't meet him in the open battlefield, which I, I don't think the army that he currently has, even if you had the Lannisters in, could. Uh, and he's like, so what are we going to do? Hole up in our castles while they rape and pillage? You know, which they would do. I mean, that's the Dothraki. Uh, and then he's like, how, how long would people stay loyal to their king? And Robert's right on here. I mean, this is a, this is he, his, the way he is uh, analyzing these events and the situation they're in, if the Dothraki actually crossed the Narrow Sea with Viserys or Daenerys Targaryen, leading them uh, is right. I think he's just right here. I, I feel like we're going to have so much fun with that scene when it comes up in like three or four episodes, because we've already referenced it, I think, twice so far in this podcast, and it's not even happened yet. It's such a great scene coming up. Okay. Um, then we cut to Essos where Danny and the cow are having sex uh, and Danny's crying she's looking at her eggs ominously uh, well no she's not looking at it ominously she's crying but you hit, you get some ominous music so you know they're, they're starting to do some artistic things I think with how they've they've shot and pulled together the scenes to show you there's a little bit more than meets the eye to, to these eggs it almost seems that she's well she's clearly only unhappy with what's going on but when she stares off the eggs she calms for a second. It's if just the idea that they're here and with her is a bit of a lodestone to help get her through what's what's happening to her. She what? Danny seems to visibly calm down when she stares at the egg. Calm, calm. <laughs> no, no, you. No, 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 oh, no. Oh, boy, Spencer, no. I about had to, had, to review, had to rewind the recording there. Okay, all right. Gave me a heart attack there. Okay, yeah, she calms her down. It does seem to calm her down. You're right about that. And that's not the only time that happens. She looks at her her dragon eggs and she calms down. Uh, then we go north. There's a very short scene there in Essos. We go north and Tyrion and John have made camp. Tyrion is in full cocky mood here. It seems like everybody who talks to John is at an all-time confidence high uh, in this season. Everybody's just a prick to him. But Tyrion explains to John, the men coming with them are rapists. We're given a choice between castration and the wall. Most chose the knife. <laughs> really throwing shade on what it means to take the black. Um, and then uh, Tyrion explains, lovely thing about the watch. You discard your old family and you get a new one. A lot of layers to this. He's basically saying... You're not in the Stark family anymore. Now you have these new folks. And also, by the way, these new folks kind of suck. Right. And for most of the world, for most of the people who are voluntarily enjoying the watch, that is a perk. That is a good thing that they're leaving their past behind. They're looking for that fresh start. You, on the other hand, you little noble bastard lordling, have you actually thought about what you're abandoning to join this bunch of of uh, up-jumped up 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 cutthroats? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. Uh, that's that's what I think he's doing. He's, he's he's questioning the move from John, but he's also giving him a little bit more information about what type of men actually um, are in the watch, which you know Tyrion probably rightly has has um, figured out that John probably has been told this sort of heroic story about the men of the Night's Watch, mm-hmm. whereas Tyrion, as a Southerner, knows the type of men they send up there. <laughs> There's no kind of noble tradition about the wall in the south the way there is in the north. You know, the third sons of noble families in the and the rest of the seven kingdoms don't go off to the wall as part of how they spend their lives in the same way that they do in the north. So, as you said, his perspective on the uh, various soldiers of the watch is pretty damn low as the uh, very as various prisons he's seen emptied to go fill their ranks. Yeah. John then asked Tyrion why he reads so much. Um, Tyrion says, look at me, bastard. What do you see? Um, and basically what Tyrion is explaining here is he's a little person. 
Uh, and because he's a little person, he he can't just pick up a sword like Jamie and just start cutting people, right? And he's never going to lead the family like Tywin, right? So he never he never is going to be able to put his um, never going to be able to uh, lead the army or be the head of the house. Um, but he does explain that he's still a Lannister and he needs to do his part for the honor of his house. And the way he can do that is by being smart and by having knowledge. And he has this great line that a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone, which I think is spot on. And it tells you a lot about Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion's got his faults. Um, he can be vindictive, especially in the books, not as much in the show. Um, and he's a whoring drunk a lot of the times, but he also does love his family and he wants to be prepared to help his family when he can. That's what I took from this scene. Right. And more so than any other character I'd say in this series, he represents that he understands himself, his limitations, but what he's still capable of and can still bring to bear in a way that a lot of their characters have a bit of a blind spot with respect to where they are weak and what they actually have to offer to the world. So he's rather unique in the regard that he Grass, he has a sense of perspective not only on himself, but how he operates in the world that most of these other characters seem to lack. Um, and, you know, a lot of people threw shade on season seven. We did a lot, too. But in this scene, there's multiple things that get called. Uh, called there's a callback in season seven. The first is um, Tyrion asks what John's story is. And John says, ask me nicely. And I may tell you, dwarf. <laughs> So do you know when there was a callback in season seven about that line? Uh, there was a callback when the two of them greet each other again about, uh, greet each other again, I think I was on the beach of just the, uh, the bastard, ding, 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 ding. the bastard of Winterfell and the uh, dwarf of Cashley Rock or something. You got it. That's right. Um, yeah, just a shout out to when they were sort of throwing these names out to each other. Um, they, they, they seem to have mutual respect or at least, um, a rapport. Uh, right away and that continues uh in season seven i'm sure it will continue in season eight uh Tyrion suggests that the night's watch protects the realm of men from grumpkins and snocks and that gets called back again spencer do you know when that gets called back again in season seven? Oh lord it's, uh, that one i do not remember e educate me sir uh so john and Tyrion are talking and john's talking about the threat north of the wall and then John throws it in Tyrion's face that he once called them grumpkins and snarks. And Tyrion does this thing of like, they were. He has this weird logic, which was like, it was, everybody knew it. It was ridiculous. Of course. That's all the facts we had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just, you know, Tyrion and John bantering a little bit about an earlier, uh, you know, conversation they had. I, I just point these out um, first off to test you with the hope that you'll fail. Second, <laughs> enjoy your point, sir. Because I just think that they do a really good job of connecting the seasons. And that's one of the things we're going to do in this podcast is, yeah, there's a reason that we're doing this podcast with the assumption you've watched all of the seasons. Mm -hmm. Because we want to point out through lines and things that the show has done really well and consistently. And this is uh, this is one of those examples. Very much so. And throughout all of this, just as he was with when he, met, when he was with uh, in that scene with Roz, I love how tickled Tyrion is when people who are very much below him in station offer a bit of snark in return to him. Mm -hmm. He's a person who is humble enough that he enjoys this degree of banter with people, regardless of their station in life, and it's a good mark for his character. Agreed. And Tyrion ends it with a very Tyrion Escaline. Um, he throws a uh, satchel of wine and, at John and says, "Everything's better with some wine in the belly." 
A truth. A truth. For real. Then we cut to Winterfell. Cat is still at Bran's side. Uh, Maester Lewin comes in. Uh, this is Maester Lewin being dutiful to the house as opposed to the person. And I don't think this was probably easy for him. But he basically tells Cat that she needs to start reviewing the accounts to see the financial impact of the king's visit on Winterfell. I'm sure it's substantial. Uh, she dismisses it and says, talk to Poole about it. I don't know who Poole is. I don't remember that name from the book. Spencer, do you? Uh, do you, well, you remember Jane Poole? Oh, okay. Yeah, her dad, right? You got it. He was the steward of the house. Ha ha. Okay. Pieced it together. Uh, little help. Uh, then Lewin explains that Poole went south with Ned. And he explains that they need a new steward and need to make several other appointments. But Kat's not hearing it. Um, she's just not in a headspace where she can deal with these administrative matters matters although she needs to or someone needs to because ned the steward a lot of the leaders in winterfell are gone mm-hmm. and that's when rob comes in rob says he'll make the appointments and i think this is the first real moment of rob being the lo- new lord of winterfell or at least a the leader of the house in residence right um this oh. is the first time he kind of takes that leadership position very much so. And I, I love Lewin's reaction with respect to both of this. As, he, as you said, he's clearly physically pained that he's seeing Catelyn in this state. He hates that he has to make her assume her responsibilities. When John steps in and assumes the role of Lord of Winterfell, Lewin is straight up proud as he's looking at him and says, of course, my lord, and then walks out. Yeah, yeah, he liked that. He loved that Rob uh, jumped in there. I did too. I mean, I, oh, like, yeah. I like Rob. I'm, I'm, I'm a big Rob fan. I'm a Rob guy. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it gets a little tough in later uh, seasons and later books because he does make some questionable moves. But I think his heart his heart is in the right place. And this is the first time we have an example of that. And sticking to his role now that he's assumed as Lord of Winterfell, Rob straight up confronts his mother over the degree to which her grief has allowed her to let her other responsibilities fall apart, including in particular with respect to Rickon. Yeah, and the quote is, Rickon needs you. He's six. He doesn't know what's happening. He follows me around all day, clutching my leg, crying. And that was like, that's kind of a heartbreaking line for me. Because like, you can just imagine a little kid confused walking around with his older brother and the brother doesn't really know what to say. And oh man, that's just a, that's a tough visual. Yeah, at this point, he knows that it, one of his brothers, he could probably use John as a brother, has just left and is seemingly never coming back again. His dad just left, seemingly without much in the way of explanation other than maybe a hug. And another brother is bedridden and nobody's really explaining why and his mom has just kind of left the scene little Rickon's support network has kind of disappeared overnight yeah but he's still got rob's leg so he's got that <laughs> the power of rob's leg it's a healing thing and you get the sense that rob is doing what he can for Rickon, but he just he needs his mother and i think that's a fair assessment i'm glad that rob brought it up and again it's more character development from rob as a leader in the family Very much um so. rob before he went into that diet that that um uh, explanation about what's going on with Rick and he did open the window he looks he sees a fire and he rushes out Spencer anything you want to say about this fire you know this is just a little odd detail that just you know hurts me in retrospect as I think about it uh, it's distinctly said in the books that what this fire was set in seemingly by the assassin to create a distraction is the tower in which the Winterfell library is kept now already nerdy me is hurt by this because the idea of books burning in this world where there's no printing press is just catastrophic but even more so that we get an off comment by Tyrion that he went up into the Winterfell Library and found books so ancient that he had no concept that they even existed or that there even would be books that old. 
Winterfell has been there for, you know, time immemorial. It was famously, it was rumored to have been built by Brandon the Builder, the same guy who built the, uh, the wall. So this castle and its foundations and the knowledge that's specifically stored within is a gateway to an ancient and forgotten world, and it's burned for the off chance of a distraction. So it's an off little moment, but it's just amazing how even the little details in these books can hurt you when you actually dwell on them for a second. Yeah, couldn't you have burned some hay barrels? I mean, my God, you don't have to burn the library. But <clears throat> the library burns. Rob rushes out, which I feel like is a little short-sighted there. <laughs> and a scraggly-looking man appears in the book he's called The Cat's Paw. Is that correct, Spencer? It is. Uh, did Rob leave the door open, or is The Cat's Paw just that stealthy? Because he, he left the door just open. appears behind Catelyn like that. Yeah, I don't know how the cat's paw was positioned when rob ran out but rob did leave the door open mm-hmm. cat's paw says you're not supposed to be here some mercy he's dead already which Tyrion, by the way would take issue with right <laughs> no uh <laughs> life is so full of possibilities and it's notable here that he's quoting the same line that we heard from both cersei and jamie yep yep nice little through line there he pulls out a knife good looking knife actually and he attacks cat now uh, here's the thing all right, I gotta I gotta shout out Cat here, because it's a hell of a defense that she has against this guy with this knife. We know that Valerian steel is the sharpest blade, the sharpest metal in all of Westeros, and she puts her hands directly on it and holds it off from her neck for a good like maybe twenty seconds. Oh yeah, she goes full on Mama Wolf on this guy in terms of she's in her night clothes, she's unarmed. He's caught her unawares, and she's willing to slice her hands with the equivalent of, you know, a diamond blade in our world terminology. Catelyn's hardcore, and she, she buys just enough time that uh, our good old friend Summer is able to intervene. Yeah, I mean, she does She does hold him off for a while. I feel like that was like, um, like the North has rubbed off on her, right? She's like, <laughs> <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. That's like her showing, like, she is of the North now, all right? You're mm-hmm. not going to go after her son, <clears throat> even if you have a Valyrian steel blade. Well, you're right. Summer then does come in, makes quick work of the guy, rips his throat out. Pretty good um, effects, I think, for this scene. It looked pretty oh. realistic that this guy's throat got ripped out and the blood was still kind of pumping as he was dying. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks great. Yeah, indeed it does. But I also, it, this scene wonderfully shows the two sides of the direwolves, where this is a vicious aggressive attack in terms of he's murdering this guy and then he gets up on the bed and he curls around Bran and falls to sleep yep and it's funny the juxtaposition there because when he's doing that you see the blood still on his face all right he even licks Bran a little bit with the blood yeah yeah that's that's a dire wolf bet uh so yeah any more on that scene no it's it's just a wonderfully it's a wonderful end to the scene, too, as Catelyn is looking at her ruined hands, looking at Summer as the scene then just cuts away back to the Dothraki camp. Then we cut to Essos, uh, and Danny's servants are tending to her wounds. I, I presume the wounds that she has from riding with the Kalasar? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've either, either wounds from that or wounds from Drogo. Uh, I'm guessing mostly from riding. Yeah, but it looked like they were topical wounds, because they were like applying a cream to her, it, as it opposed to like, like a... Yeah. yeah, it looked like saddle sores and from holding the reins, at least from what we were able to say. Yeah, that's what I'm going to reasonably assume. I don't think it's out of bounds that Drogo's rough with her and, and maybe hurts her from time to time, probably unintentionally. But I, I think this treatment specifically was from the, 
the saddle sores. And Danny asks if anyone has seen a dragon, which is interesting. Uh, she seems to not know that dragons are extinct everywhere. Which is odd. You would have think that this would have been one in the stories in history that Viserys has taught her at some point in the time they've been together. But perhaps she's just leaving open a scientific mind that, you know, it's the entire world isn't explored and there may be stories from parts unknown. Yeah, I don't know. It seemed a little uh, like she should have known that. But anyway, uh, Danny has to be left with just one of the girls. And she explains that before that the girl who left or was was left with Danny explains that before Viserys bought her, she was a what this podcast refers to as a worker, a, a professional woman. Now this this back and forth, like so. Remember when I told you at the Game of Thrones concert experience that when Drogon Drogo was like basically raping Danny, there was cheers. Yeah. Because they like the two of them together, not necessarily for that scene. At least that's what I hope. Uh, well, sure. I think that I think that that kind of reaction comes from scenes like this where we get so desensitized. Because I don't know if you caught it, but she tells Danny that she was sent to learn the trade at nine, and Danny is a guest. She's like nine, and then to calm Danny down, she says, "I didn't touch a man for three years, Khaleesi. That's still twelve. <laughs> still yeah, it's just 12. like." And in the books, that works to a certain degree because Danny's like 12, 13 at this moment. On the show where she's 18, your immediate response is, that wasn't better, Doria. What were you trying to do and trying to make me feel better about what you just said? It's like, I, like that doesn't make it. How does that make But And it's funny, though, because Danny accepts this. And Danny goes, oh, okay, 12. Right. <laughs> what show are we watching, Spencer? And Danny asks if uh, she can teach, uh, what's her name? Uh, the handmaid? Uh, it's Doria or Doria or something like that, isn't it? Okay. Uh, what you said, uh, if she could teach Danny how to make the cow happy. Um, she says, yes. Danny asks if it will take three years. She says, no. End of scene. Anything you want to talk about here? Uh, no, it is known. It is known. I love that that meme starts in this scene. <laughs> we cut to the north where John, Benjen, and Tyrion come upon the wall. Only thing I note here is that John is flabbergasted. He clearly, I mean, it's interesting. It shows again how damn big the north is and how much John has really spent pretty much all of his life at Winterfell that he's clearly never ridden far enough north to see the wall before. Yeah, as you said, he's in awe. And it, it is legitimately an impressive thing that they made for this early shot, is that I love how tiny Castle Black looks at its base. It, they did a wonderful way of making the wall just look colossal. Yeah, and I think they do a better job of it in this scene than they do in later seasons. Yeah, I don't think they maintain this much consistency about how big the wall is later on, but uh, admittedly, George R. R. Martin doesn't necessarily do the best of job either about how tall a 700-foot wall really would be. Right, and I, I think that he probably didn't... I think I've read an interview where he like kind of admitted, like, oh yeah, I hadn't really considered just how tall 700 feet is when I said that. <laughs> see, he depicts scenes like we see in the Battle of uh, Castle Black of where individual arrows go up the wall and actually hit people. Just like, no. No, you can't do that. It doesn't happen. You can't fire an arrow up to the top of a, sky, a skyscraper. So he clearly, I think, he's, I think you're right, he straight up admitted previously that he would have made the wall substantially lower if he'd had really thought about how tall 700 feet is. But isn't that such a Martin thing, though, like to be at a convention and get a very detailed question about the fact that the wall is 700 feet and then to just tell 
this poor disenchanted deflated fan oh well i just didn't really think about that yep that is martin embodied right there (laughs) so that's such a martin move okay we cut to winterfell and cat's doing a little csi westerosi uh, at the scene where Bran fell, I, I'm guessing what you're supposed to infer here is that the attempted assassination of Bran has made her very, very questionable about the fall. She, she's que- she's questioning the fall. She's she's uh, skeptical, and now she's going to investigate. I don't know what I think about this, but she finds what looks to be a long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> seems she- convenient. She also finds an area, I noticed this too, there's an area in the ground that is not covered in refuse. There is about a, we'll say, two-person-sized spot right there that has just been cleared. And she sits down in that one and finds the blonde hair too. Yeah, uh, anyway, I didn't really love that detail. But then Kat calls together what looks to be her small council. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Sir Roderick, right? It is Sir Roderick Cassell. And uh, who else is there? Meister Lewin and Rob and... Really oddly, Theon. Theon. Yeah, I don't know why Theon is there, but Kat says she thinks Bran was thrown. She suggests that Bran may have seen something he shouldn't have seen. When pressed, she says, I really don't know. Do you think she has a working theory here? Her only working theory seems to be the Lannisters must have done something. I don't think she has the slightest clue about uh, Jaime and Cersei. I think she well, thinks they might have. I think she. I think her probably suspicion is that they may have been conspiring against the king. She already has an inkling about that. The Lannisters and somebody conspiring against Robert. I don't think she has the slightest clue that the two of them are banging. Wasn't there like whispers though in the Seven Kingdoms about this? I think that's really overemphasized on the show than it is in the books. I mean, in the show, it's like strongly implied that eh, everybody already knew it was happening. In the books, it's a uh, if. The number of people that know is probably few and far between. I don't think any whispers have made it up this far. Uh, I think that, I, I think we would have seen maybe Ned and Catelyn talking about that in their bed if they had. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right because we do get those intimate moments in this season. Uh, then you see Roderick uh, point out that the weapon the cat's paw was using was too nice for such a man. Blade is Valerian steel. Spencer, do you explain Valerian steel to folks who may have just joined us for this season? Valerian steel is a bit of a hard thing to explain because it's kind of forgotten ancient magic even in, in the world of Westeros itself. Valerian steel is, as the name suggests, from Valeria, of where it is a blade which has been, as far as the people of Westeros know, soaked in with the magics of ancient now lost Valeria to make a blade that is impossibly sharp, always holds its edge, and is so damn valuable that individual lords will trade up their entire holdings for the sake of getting one. Get it now for nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine in the sense of that maybe nineteen point nine percent of all of the all of your holdings in the entire and all in all of um, the Westerlands. Because but it, uh, but it can cut through a boot. I will just point that out. It can. <laughs> yes, it can, can. It can cut through a boot. It can also cut through a tomato soup can. They're very impressive blades. Um, but not a northern woman's hands. <laughs> admittedly if you actually grab a blade it is pretty hard for it to cut you because you can hold it solid the fact that she had her hands cut at all just suggests how damn sharp these things are but as said they're incredibly valuable the technology has been lost families like the lannisters who no longer have a blade due to a variety of events theirs i think was named actually named bright roar back in the past was lost when one of the old lords uh, one of the old kings of the lannisters decided to go to valeria after shortly after it blew up 
for the sake of finding more tech, more materials, and of course never came back. And he's practically willing to trade a substantial portion of the Lannister wealth to get one of these ancestral blades himself. So, as Roderick Cassell points out, this is a kingly valuable item. This is one of the most valuable items in all of Westeros. As far as we know, in all of Westeros, there's maybe like 150 known Valerian weapons in the entirety of the Seven Kingdoms. The fact that an assassin had one with a dragon bone handle to boot for the purpose of this attack, more than merits note. It's like a point of where you could pull up an encyclopedia, if they had one, and know exactly where this blade came from, because <laughs> there's just that few of them, and those that there are have such a pedigree attached. Yeah, if the encyclopedia wasn't burnt in the library the night before. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Yes, true. Well, uh, when Catelyn rolls out this this theory that the Lannisters are involved in some way, Rob immediately jumps to, if it comes to that, I'll go to war. And then hilariously, Theon jumps in and is like, well, you know, if it comes to that, I'll help you, which is <laughs> really funny, considering the fact that when Rob actually does go to war, uh, Theon turns tail on him. Uh, and, funny, and, and tragic, you know, two sides of the same coin, I suppose. But I do like, like, Maester Lewin is like derailing VP of this episode. Because when Rob starts this sort of hot-headed talk of war with the Lannisters, Lewin counsels caution, and he makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah, I... It's like the, uh, have you seen like the, the current, like, uh, like favorite Reddit comment when somebody makes a good point? And it, it's just in italics, and it says, checks, uh, checks clipboard. Yep, reasonable points all check out. <laughs> And that is essentially the role of the Meisters and Lewis and Lewin in particular. I mean, he has almost as much as probably Catelyn and Ned raised these friggin' children. And so when he calls them out for being immature brats, he's doing so not only from the perspective of a, of a quality advisor, he's doing so from the perspective of a parent figure rightfully shouting them down for being hotheads. Yeah, no, and it, it was, uh, I like that scene because it, it did seem to blow Rob back a little bit. I think Rob does listen to Lewin. Mm-hmm. Um, for good Rob reason. offers to... Yeah, go ahead. No, it's just that for good reason. As you said, he's one who will consistently offer them good advice over the course of this series. Yep. Reasonableness all checks out. Uh, Rob offers to ride to King's Landing to tell Ned um, what Kat has discovered or what she's theorizing, and Kat says no, and then drops this line, which we hear many times throughout the series, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell. I think this is the first time we've heard it. It is, and that is definitely line of the episode material right there. Uh, you know, Rob, and I think it's Rob, questions her about leaving Bran, and she basically says, I can do no more for Bran. She's prayed to him for a fortnight, I believe. His life is in the hands of the Seven. Yeah, she says again how damn long Bran's done been in a coma. I mean, isn't a fortnight like two weeks? Yeah. Yeah, it's Jesus not good. And how, but he could. Here's a question for you, though. Like, could he have actually survived a coma in, like, medieval times like that for two weeks? Because he wouldn't be able to drink or eat. They, they don't have, like, intravenous solutions. I mean, back th- back in those days, they would find means to, to try to get them to drink broth, to try to keep them to some degree strong. But as you said, it would be very, I mean, it's, it's again, a testament to the fact that he is a noble-born lad in a noble family with a very high-quality meister there that he's survived for this period. And that even Meister Lewin can say, oh, the worst part's over. He's fine. We can keep him going. This yeah. is about the best we can hope for in terms of... Uh, uh, he can, he's getting the best that you could hope for in terms of medieval treatment to keep alive. Because as you just said, they can't exactly put an IV in him and keep him going under this technology. Yeah. No. Uh, and then Kat says goodbye to Bran. 
and end of that scene. Anything else you want to talk about with that scene in Winterfell? Uh, it, it's good to see... Ka- I mean, it, Catelyn is always a very impressive woman when she has a purpose. When she's able to find something to help her get beyond her brief, get beyond her grief, she is determined, she is driven, and she will consistently move towards her goal. And it is just impressive to see whenever it happens. Yep. And then we cut to Essos, and Danny is getting that lesson um, from her handmaid. What's the name? I'm going to look this up. I'm going to say just Doria for now, but I'm, like, I'm going to confirm that as I'm talking to you. Yep, what you said. Which seems to be, look him in the eyes and get on top. That seems to be what she took three years to learn. I'm not... <laughs> understand you have to flap through this scene pretty quickly you can't just spend a lot of time learning how a worker uh, does their trade but mm-hmm. i was not particularly impressed with this uh <laughs> this bit of um tutorial that she's giving it seems like pretty it, it's uh, day one fruit there it's day one <laughs> danny danny says that she doesn't think this is the dothraki way and uh doria uh, makes a pretty damn cogent point and says, if he wanted the Dothraki way, why did he marry you? That is really cutting to the heart of the matter, which Danny kind of takes for a second and goes, okay, that is the best explanation of my role I've gotten yet. Thank you. Really? Could my brother have not offered me that from the get-go? The rare valid point. Uh, then Danny's in the te- tent resting. Um, I think she's just waiting. And the cow comes in, no pants on. I mean, I guess this is what you do when you uh, have never had your braid cut um, and you are the leader of the biggest calisar in Essos. You could just walk around with no pants on. Um, interesting that they, she, and, and then they get into it and she deploys um, this look him in the eyes and get on top strategy, which he doesn't like at first, but then he kind of rides with it. He seems to like it. Interesting point here, Spencer. It's the first time that one of these sex scenes, they left her clothes on, but his clothes off. Right. I thought it was one of the first scenes where they were trying to show Danny as being empowered here. She's taking control. And very, very it, much as a so. visual for that, she has her clothes on. He does it. Yep. Very good catch. I, I actually did not. Thank you. That, but that, Thank that is a very good point to make. That Everything about this scene is that she is claiming her sexuality, seemingly for the first time in her life. That she sets the tempo, she sets the pace, and the slightest moment of when he looks like he's going to take back over, they instead come together to share. They're probably their first tender mutual moment. Uh, it is a very empowering moment for her, as you said. Uh, one yep. interesting, th- one um, interesting thing to note. Would you agree that I'm, we're getting, just for the time being until the show inevitably says I'm wrong, Doria? Would you say that she's pretty distinctly Westerosi? Then she has no accent. She's speaking seemingly Danny's language without difficulty. I think they're pretty strongly suggesting that she is Westerosi on the show, right? Yes, I think so. I think Viserys bought her from somebody who got her from Westeros. Which is fascinating, again, because as we said, slavery in Westeros is not a thing. We'd love to know the backstory that they created for her on the show to get her to this point. Maybe she was a poacher on Bear Island. (laughs) Oh, poor Bear Island. They're losing people right and left for this issue. (laughs) All right, then we cut to the crossroads. Um, this is a very famous inn um, that's located on the King's Road uh, when you're going uh, either north uh, to King's Landing or from King's Landing to the north, you will run into it. And it's called the Crossroads. It's an inn. And the king and his crew has arrived in force. I, they probably had to shut this thing down. It kind of reminds me like when like a rapper's like whole posse shows up at like a club. You know, like and then and <laughs> it's like everybody just has to everybody just has to leave like i don't know if you've ever been like and i have a couple times in my life one time in vegas i was in 
uh, a club and like a, a very, very famous person at the time. His name's Ja Rule came in and I, I didn't even see him. I was just ushered out of there. Like it, I don't even have a story. Like I, I, I don't. Common sorry, people leave. Interesting. But it was basically like, yeah, you just get the hell out now. And then I heard whispers that it was Ja Rule. Now, I don't know, but maybe. But anyway, that's how I feel like the commoners at the Kings Road or the Crossroads were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's just they just got kicked the hell out of there because King Bobby B rolls deep. He has got oh, a yeah. lot of people uh, in his, his group. I love how different him, how the various factions in his group are. They did a great job for these early seasons in terms of showing how distinctly different the appearance of the Northernmen, the Lannisters, and including uh, the, um, the, the 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 Baratheon soldiers, too. And I love to see their very distinct styles in their tents and their outfits and their armors. They really just uh, mesh and interact with each other. Right. Uh, well, Santa's walking around with Lady. Uh, Lady is a gorgeous wolf, by the oh, way. Oh, very much so. Man. <laughs> I mean, it's clear the, they emphasize this in the books, and it's shown too in how they cast it. I even the friggin' you know direwolves that they resemble and have the bearing and have the general emotional state of their owners. It's part of the connection they almost immediately have with each other. Magical beast. Uh, then a weird-looking bald guy shows up, uh, looks at uh, Sansa. She's clearly startled. The hound walks up behind and asks if. Uh, this person who was Sir Ellen Payne scared her. Um, or if he did, if the hound did. And Sansa uh, asked, why won't he speak to me? <laughs> and the hound hits him with this one. He hasn't been very talkative the past 20 years since the Mad King has his tongue ripped out with hot pincers. <laughs> Spencer, book story, fire away. All right. Well, as said, uh, as uh, Joffrey confirms here a few seconds later, uh, Sir Ilan Payne is the King's Justice. The last name may sound familiar because uh, little Podrick Payne, also known as the Tripod to us, is, I believe, his nephew yeah, or, a di- or a distaff member of his family. I can't remember exactly right now. Uh, Sir Ilan Payne, before he was the King's Justice, was the leader of um, Tywin Lannister's bodyguard, a very loyal Lannister bannerman, which suggests, again, the level of skill this man can bring to bear. He... Uh, during the period of uh, Tywin's command as Hand of the King, was close by in the royal court. And as Tywin was essentially ruling Westeros and having all the power while the Mad King was increasingly descending into madness and not appearing to much of the world, Ewan Payne would be a little bit indiscreet when he suggested publicly and talking to another person that Tywin was the, ru- was the real ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. The Mad King, who, as said, had a bit of madness about him, took this not only offensively, but took this as proof and validation of the increasing paranoid beliefs that he had that Tywin indeed aspired to supplant him. And in punishment to this individual who uh, had committed a, a bit of an act of heretic, of, uh, who committed this offensive statement against him, and also probably as a thumb in the eye of Tywin, who he was increasingly trying to humiliate and thwart, the Mad King had Sir Ilan Payne brought in, brought before the uh, Iron Throne and had his tongue ripped out with hot iron pincers. Uh, in acknowledgement to him still being a loyal soldier whatever else, Tywin and Robert after him have seen that Ilan Payne always has a place in court and always has a uh, his needs cared for, but uh, he has become an even darker and more savage individual as a result of what happened to him and also a result of his now assigned role as the royal executioner. And I love 
once <coughs> he and the Hound have this conversation, once Joffrey shows up to kind of force him off, the little kind of guttural growl that Ilan Payne gives as he walks away. Which is a shout out to the books, right? Because Ilan Payne is in the books and he makes a weird hissing noise. You, 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 you said he lacks a tongue, but he still finds means to communicate. Um, there's a little hissing noise, but also this kind of clucking trill that he does when he's laughing at people. That uh, in play, he actually trains Jamie after he loses his hand in place of Bronn on the show. And Jamie has to realize at a certain point that a lot of these weird noises that Dylan Payne is making is him laughing and mocking Jamie. Yep. I was going to actually point that out. So shout out to you, Spencer. Uh, Joffrey shows up, dismisses, uh, Ilan Payne walks off and he dismisses the hound. He says, away with you, dog. And he asks Sansa to go on a walk. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to point out something here. Sansa just leaves Lady sitting there. She just drops the leash and walks off. And this good dog, who's a good dog, you're a good dog, sat down and just hung out there. And by all accounts, stayed right around the area, didn't act up, was totally cool. Lady, you're a good dog. And let's compare how we've seen, how well trained we've seen the other dogs in the course of this. Uh, Particularly uh, comparing uh, Lady to Nymeria, where Nymeria was, you know, dutiful, but not really responding to commands, was kind of doing her own thing, very Arya-like. Whereas Lady, you tell Lady to sit, Lady will starve to death at that spot until you come back. Yeah. She would do a straight uh, yeah. fries dog from Futurama if you asked her to. Ooh, nice reference. Then we cut to Joffrey and Sansa. They're walking. Joffrey's drinking wine. Um, he asks Sansa if she wants some more. Sansa says no. She's only allowed to have one cup with dinner. Joffrey makes some preposterous comment. My lady can drink as much as she wants. I took this to mean that Joffrey was a little tipsy. Uh, I don't think the actor played it that well, but I, I think that's what we were supposed to believe. He was swaggering a little, but yeah, I think I think they could have played that up a little bit more. Because that's important for what comes up later, because they come upon Arya and the Butcher's Boy. Do we get the name of the Butcher's Boy in the uh, in the book? I, I think it is Micah. I think it is the same name. Oh, Micah. Yeah, that's right. No, they do say it in the show. Shout out you. Point for Spencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Joffrey is just being a ridiculous person. He starts bullying <laughs> uh, Micah. For, um, for no reason. Out. No reason. Nothing. Like, they're just sitting there playing. And he pulls this thing out and he says, ask Micah to get his sword. After he's pulled his sword out. And Micah, like, rightly points out, like, it's not a sword. It's just a stick. And he goes, pick it up. Well, uh, then Joffrey puts the blade up to Micah's uh, cheek and starts to cut him. Which you could see coming a mile away. Arya was not going to let this stand. Uh, and she hits him. And here's an interesting point about this scene that I did not remember, and I was a little startled. Joffrey starts wildly swinging his sword at Arya. He straight up <laughs> tried to kill her. He really did. Like, Arya's quick, and she got out of this situation, but she totally could have died right there. And then we get, woo, woo, meme alert. Stop it, both of you. You're spoiling it. You're spoiling everything. <laughs> Which that has become one of the biggest Game of Thrones memes um of sophie turner standing there screaming uh, oh, yeah. you're spoiling it you're spoiling everything this is quintessential season one sensor right here okay the guy i'm supposed to marrying is now trying to murder my sister i'm gonna rant at them that they've ruined my magical walk moment <laughs> really i got she can be so groan inducing sometimes you're spoiling my walk well he's trying to kill your sister maybe you tell him to put the sword down <laughs> good lord anyway oh. he finally gets aria on the ground 
and dun, 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 dire wolf comes in again second time in the episode and attacks him grabs him by the arm and starts shaking him she takes the sword now it, that, wait, let's back up a little bit i think all parties involved are, are lucky that nymeria didn't just go for the throat there because i think that was probably oh, yeah. on the table oh yeah but she didn't she took his arm and uh aria takes his sword and joff starts bagging and then in like a real serious alpha move, Arya just tosses his sword in the river. Like, why? She did not have <laughs> no, to do I that, should... but it's so great that she did. I completely agree. That was such an alpha move. Good job, Arya. Uh, Arya runs off with Nymeria. And then in the brush, um, you know, she sees, I think she sees a Lannister soldier looking for oh, yeah. her. A lot of them. Yeah, and she, there's a couple of things I want to talk about here. Well, let me get, get through the explanation of what happens. Um, so she explains to Nymeria that Nymeria has to go. And the wolf doesn't want to go. She doesn't really seem to get it. Um, and eventually, Arya has to start throwing stones at Nymeria. He catches her one good hit on the jaw, and Nymeria leaves. Heartbreaking scene if you've ever had a dog that you love or a pet that you love generally. Uh, tough. I, you know. And they're not going to see each other again for six years. But at least they do. So we, they did give us that little bit. But man, the idea of, you know, you're that young and you love your dog and you have to make it leave so that it doesn't die anyway. Really heartbreaking stuff. But one thing I want to talk about here, Spencer, I think you you noted that this scene is a good bit different from the books. So I'll let you talk about that if you'd like to now or if you want to push it till book nerd bitching. It, it, but, it's sure. Mm, sure, well, I just find it hard to believe that it would be the Lannister soldiers that would be finding because the, the Lannister soldier is very close to Arya. Later on, um, we find out that Arya was actually found by a Lannister soldier. I find it very hard to believe that the Northerners wouldn't be a little bit better <laughs> at looking for Arya or getting getting her attention or getting her trust so that she would come out right. Because some of these Northern lords that came with Ned, she knows and trusts very much. If she saw them, wouldn't she run up to them? And if she did, she'd be in a much better position because she'd have been taken straight to Ned as opposed to straight to King Bobby B and Cersei. It it is noticeable change. And I think they did it so they could have Ned be able to just bull his way into the room and add dramatic tension that he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen on the show. But as you say, it kind of takes away from some of the relationship that Arya has with the other various uh, members of the Stark household. Because as you're hinting at in the books, it's the Starks that find her first, not 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 Ned himself, but his uh, the commander of his guard, Jory Cassell, who we get to see a little bit in this episode, and I said we get to know his dad, uh, his uncle quite a bit, Roderick Cassell. But notably, he finds her first because again, they know her better, they know where she would go, and also, generally speaking, they're better trackers going through the wilderness than the Lannisters are anyway, and they're also more determined to find her, and she's more willing to trust and go up to them anyway. But he finds her, and he also finds Nymeria, and he finds her as a Lannister patrol is starting to come up. And the two of them together, with him agreeing to help and them sharing the idea, work together to scare off Nymeria to protect her. It's a noticeable different scene in several ways. It sets up a different dynamic. Um, and I, in some ways, begrudge the loss because it takes away from, again, just how loyal the various Stark retainers are to, the, are to Ned and his family and how much they're willing to help them in various ways that they know would matter to them, including in protecting Nymeria. So I get why they changed it, but this is actually a change I did not like. I didn't either. It just doesn't, it's not realistic to me that the Lannisters would find her first, unless the insinuation 
is that the Lannisters just had so many more soldiers that they just canvassed very quickly. But that falls apart because of how they show the scenes, right? Because she's clearly, uh, Nymeria runs off during the day. I mean, it looks to be close to high noon, if not just early afternoon. Mm-hmm. And Ned is looking for her after it's dark. And he's just then informed that she had been found. So this is another question I had is like, did Arya just like hide for eight hours? Like, <laughs> If so, why? Why didn't she try to find a northerner, try to find her father? I, yeah, I don't really get that either, honestly. I guess she, anyway, she, she probably figured she'd be in trouble, but come on. Well, I mean, what's the end game here, Arya? You just going to sit out here all night? Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, that just explain what happened. So Ned is, is looking for her. He's yelling for Arya. And he's told, all right, she's been found. By who? The Lannisters. And then he's told she's been taken before the king. So, and you alluded to this scene. I love it. It's like so Ned. Mm-hmm. He just, as you, in your words, barreled his way into this room. He clearly is like, he's at like nine and a half and ten. He'd start killing people. Like he's really pissed off here that, that our Lannister soldiers just took his daughter, didn't bring him to him who's hand of the king by the way he's not like not like he's a, a, <laughs> like oh, yeah. a lower level he's like the number two to robert instead was brought directly before robert and he has to know that that's because the lannisters wanted uh her to be brought there oh yeah so he stumped he comes in and he says what is the meaning of this why was my daughter not brought to me at once that's all I, Go ahead. yeah I, I love as he's burling his way in all the Lannister guards are fronting, like they're trying to stare him down and look superior, but they're all getting the fuck out of his way. Oh, it's true. I mean, Ned clearly has a reputation, and, and rightly so. Um, so, they, yeah, they get out of his way, plus he is the Hand of the King, like I mentioned. I mean, he, he's right. now one of the guys. A um, couple things about how Ned interacts with Robert here. Um, he clearly can talk to Robert in a way no one else can. Oh, yeah. And Robert shows no offense at it either. They do have a unique and special kind of relationship about this. And when he does come in and he fires at Robert that way, Cersei, I don't know if you caught Cersei's reaction. She seemed a little impressed. Cersei, yeah, was taken aback by this. She clearly doesn't really get Ned and Robert yet. And this is an important scene for her getting to understand their relationship. Because as you said, she's caught off guard by how confident and aggressive he has been going into the scene. Whereas she's previously seen him as just being very deferential and kind of, you know, quiet and brooding. Yeah. And and the only thing she can muster is, how dare you speak to your king that way? And then you get a great Bobby Beelon, quiet woman. (laughs) You do a good Robert impression. That was pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to do it at least one more time. Um, But yeah, he he just, look, here's the thing. You know, obviously I don't like... Uh, men in a position of power who treat their wives or girlfriends or women generally bad. But this is fake. And I don't like Cersei. And every time that Robert is rude to her, I laugh. So sue me. But I, it cracks me up every time he just dismisses her offhand. Because first off, no one else in the world dismisses her except for her father, probably that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, he's just hilarious how he does it. She's such an afterthought to him. And as we see at the end of the scene, with how much of a vengeful, vengeful, pardon the phrase, bitch she can be, she deserves it. She deserves his scorn. Yeah, well, then Cersei claims that Joffrey was attacked by Arya and Micah, I suppose. Uh, Arya says it didn't happen. 
Um, Josh says, yes, it did. They get in this little, like, little kid tete-a-tete back and forth. And uh, I, can't remember. I think it's Robert asks where Sansa is. Um, and Ned and, says she's asleep. And Cersei says, no, she's not. I went and got her. And that very much shocks Ned. That He was not expecting that. Well, you know, this is show Cersei. I mean, she she can play chess. So she went and got Sansa, knowing that Sansa would be in a really tough situation here. And she is. I am not a Sansa apologist like you are, Spencer. Mm -hmm. uh, But I do feel tough for her in this situation. And she does try to demur. She tries to say, I don't remember. I don't want to answer the question. Um, But she starts to try to explain it. Arya says, you're lying, pulls her hair. (laughs) She goes full on Arya on her. I know, and I, I loved it, but I also hated it, right? Because I, I, I liked, because I like young Arya. I was just like, that, yes, get her. Like, that's that's the character I know and I like. But then you cut to Cersei, and it's clear that this really Playing bolsters Cersei. Yeah, exactly. It bolsters her position here, because it does make them look wild. She even says, she's as wild as that wolf of hers. Mm-hmm. And Ned has to break them up. Um, <laughs> and then Robert delivers this line. Enough! He tells me one thing, she tells me another. Seven hells, what do I make of this? Now, here's the thing I liked about it. Is not only does he just erupt because he's just annoyed, but it also seems to me to be the first time that Robert has ever figured out that parenting is hard. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good catch. I didn't really think I'd pick up on that. But yeah, there's an element of that in this scene. I feel like everybody who has kids or have ever watched multiple young kids at the same time is going like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what kids do. He tells me one thing. She tells me the other. What do I make of this? Well, Robert, it's interesting. This is the first time you've ever had to deal with this situation. It's notable. He delivers a pretty damn fair ruling with respect to it. He just kind of concludes, OK, children fight. It's over. Ned, you punish your daughters. I'll punish my son. We good. We good. Also, Joffrey, you are a pussy that got disarmed by a girl. He did. He did. Um, Cersei, because, you know, yeah. But So to your point, Robert basically says, look, I, I, make sure your child's punished. Make sure your daughter's punished. I'll make sure my son is punished. This is over. It's done, Ned. And Cersei keeps pushing the issue. And finally he goes, what would you have me do? Whip her through the streets? Oh, nice foreshadowing. Shame. Shame. Yeah, good Shame. catch there. Good catch. Um, and then he just turns and says, you let that little girl disarm you. And I thought, like... It's good that he brings this up, but I, from what I think I know about King Bobby B, uh, both from the book and the show, I thought he would make a bigger deal of this. It, I mean, how do you interpret this? Is he shaming his son that he did get disarmed, or is he using this to poke a hole in his story? Uh, no, I think he's shaming him. I don't yeah. think he has any doubt that Arya, I mean, Arya has shown in this scene that she is tougher than Joffrey. Yeah, and he, they do have the visible effects that his arm was bitten. So I, I think he's down with that. But as said, yes, Robert, proud warrior that he is, legendary warrior that he is, is looking on his son with just abject shame, just abject disappointment that really, really, my, I think, I think Joffrey at this point is like 13 or 14, got disarmed by a nine-year-old. Bravo, sir. Bravo. <laughs> Which, not really fair to Joffrey, because it's the wolf that disarmed him, almost, literally. Uh, but, you know, fair enough. I, I, I would think that he came out on the losing end of that interaction, and I can't imagine Robert would like his son 
you know, getting getting sort of housed there by what amounts to a large wolf at this point, or a large uh-huh. dog at this point, because he's not she's not full dire wolf sized, uh, and Arya. Um, then he gets up to leave, and Cersei, God, she's the worst. Oh yeah. What of the dire wolf? Oh the hell, I forgot about the dire wolf. He doesn't know about the wolf. And they explain there's no trace of the of of uh, Nymeria. Uh, she's gone. And then Cersei just out of nowhere suggests killing another one. What the fuck? This doesn't make any sense. And Ned immediately protests, but Robert's like, he insisted. Finally, Robert's about to leave. Ned, almost in desperation, just yells, is this your command, your grace? And it clearly is. He doesn't really respond, but he, he says, yeah. And it, well, actually, he does respond. He says, you know, get her a, get her a dog. Uh, dire wolves aren't, aren't proper pets. Yeah. Cersei is so pleased here. Cersei got the win. She gets to hurt the Starks. That's what she's going for here. And she immediately sends the royal executioner to go perform it, as if it is a royal decree that this wolf be executed for the crimes against the family. Another Ned moment for you. The wolf is of the north. Therefore, he has to do it. Oh, God, Ned's the best. Ned's the best. And poor Sansa is just realizing the... It has finally hit her what's about to happen, and she's inconsolable. She's falling apart. Arya's staring daggers. Jory comes up and is legitimately trying to confront the two of them, very much sad about what's about to happen, too, as Ned stalks off to go perform his duties. Yeah, I covered a lot there. Anything you want to say about um, this scene? It's a pretty interesting scene because it shows, uh, I think, the dynamic between Robert and Ned uh, really well, but then also uh, Cersei's interjection in that relationship. It's interesting, too, because it's the first moment that Ned's ever seen a weakness about Robert. He's known Robert's got this, you know, obsessive desire to punish the Targaryens. He's known that since before Robert became king. This is ever the first moment that he's seen Robert, though, voluntarily let an injustice happen. Because he's either too indifferent or too unwilling to fight with Cersei about it. And he clearly is, as you said, a bit shocked and desperate that he's seeing it happen before him. Yeah, and and that even gets compounded, right? Because he goes outside and he's walking to Lady, who is still a good boy. She's a good boy. Still sitting there. He's so good. And he sees uh, the hound come by. And Micah, the butcher's boy, is dead um, over over the uh, the horse. And the hound clearly has done it. So Ned yells, the butcher's boy, you rode him down? <laughs> very hound fashion. He rode very fast. Oh, yeah. And it... it you compound this whole situation with his daughter being taken to the king before him, this weird bit of theater that happens between Robert and Cersei. Robert condoning the killing of a completely innocent animal who is the pet of one of his daughters, and now the wildly unnecessary and illegal killing of this young boy. I think Ned has to be thinking he's made a heck of a mistake. Yeah, just what world have I ridden into? This is something yeah. that just wouldn't happen under my rule in the North. And I'm now going to try to rule this just utter chaos. God help us all. Cut to Bran sleeping. I kind of like the uh, the back and forth between the two different scenes here. But yeah, Bran is sleeping. They're kind of panning up his his torso, uh, up to his, his face. Uh, you see Ned Pet Lady. Uh, she's still being a good girl. And he pulls the dagger, and Lady's like, oh, what? <laughs> Which I don't know if they trained the dog to do that, but it was such a natural-looking reaction because he unsheaths that dagger, and the, the dog's like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't bolt. 
just still doesn't bolt. Such a good girl, but just clearly afraid. Yeah, and then it cuts to Bran again with Summer Lane next to him, and Summer's Ned... freaking out. Summer's freaking out too. Yeah. Summer is not liking this. Ned is really not liking this, oh, yeah. and he slits Lady's throat. And when he does so, Bran wakes up. End of episode. And yeah. a, a transitional episode, but an important one, which answers so many questions that we had going forward about it. Well, both answers and poses many questions they would have going forward for this series. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, you know, it's really this series throwing two heaters right from Jump Street, right? I mean, you have the initial sort of set the world, meet the characters of the first episode, and then they, they progress the plot an awful lot in oh, yeah. this episode. Um, setting you up for the events that happen later in King's Landing. Um, you know, they basically just needed to get this royal concert to King, consort to King's Landing, but do so in such a way that continues to show you um, the dynamics between the characters and really focuses on a lot of character development. Yeah, it's, it's an important demonstration of war. I, I, I describe this as a transitional episode, and it is to a certain degree. We've had the introduction, now we're moving towards King's Landing where the main plot will really start off. But it's a transitional episode early enough in the series that whereas now they kind of have an idea for A and they kind of have an idea for C and they just kind of muddle their way through B, this was early enough on where they had a clear enough concept of the plot and enough material that they were pretty much straight up quoting from that even the transitional moments are full and complete and vibrant and gives us lots of material and plot progression in their own way. So it was still a pleasure to watch it. Completely agree. Okay. Do you have any other general thoughts about the episode before we jump into my favorite segment, Best Line? Let's go, let's jump right into quotes now, because i got a few we can go through. Okay, let's go. I'm going to start right out with the Dothraki. You have two things in abundance. Grass and horses. You can't eat grass. I'm trying to get back to the top of my page. One second. Uh, I'm going to give Joffrey credit. Better looking bitches than you're used to, Uncle. Was a good line. <laughs> Uh, how about, I hope so. If he forgets, be a good dog and remind him. Great line. Great line. And again, I love, which a wonderful actor Peter Dinklage is, I love that he's still trying to front that he's okay and perfectly confident with this, and is said then walks away with a concerned look on his face about what the hell he just did. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll give another. I'll give another Tyrion line. Uh, and Jamie's saying, tell me you're not planning on taking the black. I'd go celibate. The horse would go begging from Dorne to Castle Rock. No, I just want to stand on the top of the wall and piss off the edge of the world. If there's more of a Tyrion philosophy embodied in one line, I don't think I can. I don't think I know it. More Tyrion. Speaking for the grotesque, I have to disagree. Death is so final, whereas ah, life so full of possibilities. Hope the boy does wake. Very interested to hear what he has to say. Good line. Uh, and from here's here's a line from the person that uh, Tyrion was speaking with. Give my regards to the Night Watch. I'm sure it will be thrilling to serve in an elite force. And if not, it's only for life. I just love the mockery that Jamie just has in every line of these early seasons. It's going to be very rare that I nominate Cersei for best line of the episode, but I am doing it here. Robert was crazed. Beat his hand bloody on the wall. All the things men do to show you they care. It is a good line, and it's we think at time that she's straight up lying, but we later on find out there may be an element of truth to it, too. Mm -hmm. Uh... I'm going to give uh, one or two from the scene involving uh, Jon Snow and Arya. But uh, 
first one, as you pointed out, first lesson, stick them with the pointy end. And then all the best swords have names, you know. Sensa can keep her sewing needles. I've got a needle of my own. Great pair of lines in that scene. And I got to tell you, yeah, very good. I got to tell you, if I was a selfish man, which I'm not, I'm a man of the listeners of the people, uh, I would pick this as best line of the episode, but I objectively know it should not be, but it would be this sequence. <laughs> I love that? the gestures that's the two of them share. Impressive. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's a great scene. It, it, all, that entire scene is wonderful. Lovely. Uh, scene shortly thereafter of Ned and Kat. Uh, Ned saying, I have no choice, and her responding, that's what men always say when honor calls. That's what you tell your families, tell yourselves. You do have a choice, and you've made it. Yeah. She loves him, but she's spitting that one at him. If him and his honor is being just used as a shield to cover responsibility to a certain degree, yep. at least from her perspective. Which she's spot on about. Uh, I will cut to Ned talking to John. You are stuck. You might not have my name, but you have my blood. Great line, because it... It, it, is, it, is, it becomes evidence for later theories, right? Both in the book and the show. Very much so. Uh, and you've set me up for possibly the best line of the episode. Bessie! Thank the gods for Bessie and her tits. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that one. Um, I'll kill every Targaryen I get my hands on. You can't get your hands on this one, can you? It's an unusual bit of snark out of Ned. I like, I like, I like the only times you really see snarky Ned is when he's dealing with Robert. Yep. Ah, uh, whoo. There's, there's a couple good ones from Robert here. I mean, and this, he's, he ends this one with, there's a war coming, Ned. I don't know when. I don't know I don't know who will be fighting, but it's coming. But I think my favorite one from the scene is, I swear, if I weren't your king, you would have hit me already. The worst thing about your coronation, I'll never get to hit you again. <laughs> yeah. Again, just a lot of scenes in this episode to show you, and it really sets up for the events in King's Landing, how close these two characters are. Um, I guess we can do Ask Me Nicely, and I may tell you, Dwarf. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, just even before that, now this one's very iconic. It's one of the more quoted ones from the books. Well, my brother has his sword. And I have my mind. And a mind needs a sword. And a mind, and a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. And then, oddly, they cut off an additional line from the books to keep it sharp. They don't say it on the show for some reason. But still, it's a great line even on the show. Yeah, I like it. Um, I can jump ahead here. I'm going to go ahead and nominate this one. Obviously, it's uh, possibly the leader in the clubhouse. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. It's iconic, if nothing else. I mean, it is a truth, and it is a, t a lodestone that people will hold true, will hold out for uh, seasons to come. Um, I'll offer this one from Ned because it is a great line. If it must be done, I'll do it myself. The wolf is of the north; she deserves better than a butcher. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, how about this one? Quiet, woman. <laughs> As you said, just even the accent he uses when he says it is wonderful. <laughs> the way he like, really draws out the two two words. Uh, and then I have the final one from me. The butcher's boy. You wrote him down? He ran. Not very fast. Yeah. No, I don't have any more. I think we've, we've covered him. A um, lot of good lines. A yeah. lot of funny lines. A lot of good, iconic mm -hmm. King Bobby B lines, which you know that that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So, now it's time I select best line of the episode, season one, episode two, titled The King's Road. 
must always be a Stark in Winterfell. It kind of has to win. It's like, you know, it's like the North remembers or he who passes the sentence but swing the sword. The, the lines that embody the Stark philosophy are too good not to give credit. And they're such an important part of the ethos of the show in the first couple seasons. So I don't know how you pick anything other than that unless you're just doing something funny, which, you know, I don't I, I like to point out the funny ones. But like actual line of the episode should be the ones that are really impactful. Right. Uh, and important to the narrative uh, of the show. So I think that's that's the obvious pick here. Uh, uh, go ahead. I do enjoy what it reveals about Robert that he probably couldn't tell you what royal decree he entered yesterday, but Bessie and her tits straighten his head still after all these years. Yeah, well, but if he forgot that it was one of his. <laughs> <laughs> but he remembered her. He remembered her. Just that apparently he himself was the one doing the fucking. Yeah. You know, he, that's a detail. He Yeah, he does go, like, because when Ned says she was one of yours, he goes, ah, oh, Bessie. <laughs> Right, I remember now. I remember the tits. The tits stuck with me. Who, where, where who was doing what? What particular moment? You know, that fades into the best. But them tits. I tell you, I could. I, I really needed more seasons of King Bobby B. Mark Addy destroys that character. He's so funny. This is why it hurts me. They're not doing Robert's Rebellion. I know why they're not. All the details about it are already basically out there. But God, it would have been fun to see young Robert. It would have been fun to see just Ned and Robert at their prime, riding around the Seven Kingdoms. Doing what Robert says they should do and just roaming the streets, do, righting wrongs and banging women. Ah, what could have been? Hey, you sound like you're kind of dreaming there a little bit, Spencer. A lot of dreaming, because that's Robert's dream. Can you imagine Ned just randomly going off with various whores at any point in his life? I'm talking about you as an individual. Oh, me? Nah, not at all. I'm too, I'm too lazy. Give me a comfy couch and my own bag of chips and I'm happy. <laughs> okay, well, uh, on that note, we will go to our last segment segment we called book nerd bitching in this segment spencer presents a number of topics to me um, that he wants to talk about and or complain about that are uh, from the book uh related to the show spencer take it away you know and as usual i'm gonna try to give you options and this time despite the fact we did about three of them over the course of the episode i've still got other options for you to pick between so i'm gonna give you a few you pick half of them that i'm actually going to present we like to add a certain degree of randomness and drama to our show whenever we have the opportunity because we're professional broadcasters indeed that's what we are uh option number one uh a shy and the land beyond a shy the land of shadow it's off-discussed on the show. We meet several characters of it, several characters that are from there or who have been there. And while we may eventually see it in the books, I don't think we'll ever get to see it on the nope. show. So it bears a little bit of mentioning about what the hell people are talking about when describing what is the closest equivalent that this world has to basically Mordor. Uh, so that's option number one. Option number two, uh, Catelyn, John, and what she actually told him when she wanted him to leave the room. Option number three. Uh, this was an interesting one. Uh, Danny, Cersei, and sexuality on the show. Why many aspects of the sexuality of the characters have either been shortened or simplified, and why that may be. And actually, we covered every other one in the. T- <laughs> we we're actually going through the show in the first place, so I gave you three. Maybe pick one or two, and we'll do we'll do, we'll do those. Okay. Uh, I. I'm going to pass on Danny and Cersei and the sexuality. I feel like we can cover that with some scenes in later episodes. I know why you brought it up here because, you know, she was getting the sort of sex lesson or whatever. Um, But there are other moments where I thought the show was going to go there and they didn't. 
that we can touch on in later episodes and later seasons. So I'm going to go with a shy of the land of shadow and cat John and what was really said when she asked him to leave the room. All right, let's do cat John first. Cause it is shorter. Um, We've talked about already in the course of these two episodes that it is very apparent that Catelyn does not like John, And my interpretation of that very much is, is that she sees him as an embodiment of her husband's mistakes and missteps and betrayal of her. And while she could never hate Ned, she loves and cares about Ned too much. He's too much of an honorable man to despise, no matter what he's alleged to have done or what she believes that he has done. She can't hate the product of it. She can't hate the physical example of it. And she clearly does despise him and want him to have no part in her life. She stares daggers at him at every possible opportunity. She kicks him out of the throne room to avoid shaming the family. And in this scene, hey, we see hey, her... Can Please. Is in a very rare moment for the GOT Got Questions podcast, I'm going to contribute to book nerd bitching. So look out, everybody. Oh, God. Go on. I would like to point out... Cat has a POV where she's talking. She has an internal monologue about John, and mm-hmm. she actually she admits and she like tell she's talking through like her past experience, and we get the background that she tried to love John. Do you remember that? And just could. And she failed. She... And she actually sees that as a personal failing of herself, which I think is important when you're thinking about this scene and and you know kind of how she treats him. Right. And I think that shame to a certain degree kind of motivates her to further despise him because now she's having to recognize through him where she has failed as a mother and a person that she can't forgive this innocent child for literally the sins of the father. And that's what I was going for there is that John now to Kat is illustrative, just his presence of Ned's weakness and her weakness. Very good catch. Very good point to make out. Um, The show is... As much as this is a fundamental thing for her character, and a fundamental thing for John too, it is a key tenet of John's psychology when we see through his eyes about how much Kat's hatred has hurt him, has isolated him, has made him feel legitimately not a Stark for how coldly she treats him. The show dilutes it in several ways, and at several times, in inventing certain scenes and imagining certain scenes, in some ways possibly to improve our impression of uh, Catelyn as a character. One of the earliest of these that happens is right here, right now, in Bran's room. Of when John turns to leave, after he's had that last moment, after she tells him to leave, and before Ned shows up, she hears, he hears Cotlin call to him, John. And he knows this is not a good thing for him to, this is not, not going to be good. He knows he shouldn't turn back, but he feels compelled to do so. And he turns back to her, and he looks at her, and she's staring at him with just pain and agony and everything else piled in her. And she tells him, it should have been you. Oh, my gosh. Oh! Yeah, that's And rough. he just takes this on the chin and nods and walks out the door. And heightened, and notably, we saw him lie to Rob immediately after the scene about, um, your mom was very polite, was very kind. Rob just kind of takes it. Same scene happens in the books. But instead, he's lying about the fact that she just told him that shit. Well, but here was my thought when I was reading the books. Is that actually, that scene made me think that Kat was much meaner to him consistently, or at least on a regular basis, than I ever thought from earlier interactions, just because of how John takes it. He, he takes it like, oh, this yeah. is just something, it's one of the things that she says to me. It, it, it is a very harsh moment for Catelyn. Uh, it does not in any way portray her in a good light. As much as she is in grief, this is an incredible, hurtful, and hateful thing to say to anyone, particularly someone you already have a very estranged and 
difficult relationship with. And as you said, the fact that he does not respond in any way to this and just continues on does not say good things about what the past has had between these two people. So the question I offer you, because I'm loving you interacting with me on this book nerd pitching, why do you think they changed this? Why do you think they altered this aspect of her character and altered this aspect of her interactions with another main character? Because I don't think that the scene would have, if you'd have done it the same way the book did it, I don't think it would have engendered any more sympathy from John than what we already had, but it would take away from the sympathy you have for Kat, which is very important in later seasons. So you see this consistently with uh, some of the characters that they change. Cersei is another good example. They they blunt them a little bit. They make them a little less harsh because they want you to get buy into that character's storyline later on down the road. Right. And I think, as we saw with how they've changed aspects of Ned's character, of actually not necessarily blunting him, but making him more expressive, more interactive, is that we lose something from not having the point of view. That when we have the point of view inside of Catelyn, we see her conflict. We see that she's we see how multifaceted that she is. We see the various things that are warring in her system. She tries to do her duty while also succumbing to petty human emotion in the process. And she comes across as remarkably sympathetic for that. If we just had, had her, episode two, just kind of just met her, say this line to an innocent, likable other character who's going to be a main character going forward, it would have been hard for us to forget or forgive that. So I miss, in some ways, this them removing this hard edge from Cat. They had to add various other scenes later to further expand on it, like when she's talking with, oh God, what was, what was the name of Rob's wife on the show? Talisa, I think it was? Talisa. Talisa. Uh, she then shares a story about how she cared for John and prayed for his safe recovery when he got sick, which absolutely she did not ever do in the books and would, probably wouldn't have done, because they have to keep going and expand on what they've already done to dilute their relationship to a certain degree. Um, so I kind of miss that they left out the hard edge, but I agree with you. It would be a hard thing for them to do in the show format just given the nature of how they portray and show things with the characters. Oh, that's a good point. So I, I referenced the internal sort of struggle with Kat where she was remembering, um, you know, that, that she tried to love John. And that that is in the books, I believe. But they do work that into the show with that monologue that she yeah, she gives to Lisa. So that, that's, that's a good point. They do work that in in later seasons. They, they, they want to work it in to some degree. They create a story that didn't happen. But as you say, it's reflecting a degree of the emotion and effort that is described in her own mind. So this is an important change. It fundamentally alters or at least dilutes the relationship between two characters that affect, that uh, is important to understanding their characters. But it's just another almost necessary cost in some ways of the change in format. And so it's an important change. I don't necessarily like it, but I fully understand it. And uh, from what I'm picking up from you, it seems like you agree. I do. And as the Speaker of the House and the pro tempore of the Senate, the first one of all time, uh, I interacted with this book nerd bitching. So you can damn well bet this is going to pass both chambers <laughs> by a super majority. Good job, Spencer. I really liked this one. Are you suggesting that there was a degree of outside influence that compelled this vote? Are you suggesting this was not necessarily in the best interests of the system, but reflecting a certain degree of outside money, influence, and politics behind this? I'm the invisible hand, Spencer. Oh, dear God. Capitalism in action. Yeah, keeps on okay. going. A shy. Uh, we've already heard several times a shy referenced over the course of these books. It is, I believe, where earlier I said a couple while uh, an episode ago, where the eggs came from. It is in a story that Jorah says about um, how the Dothraki believe that the ghost grasped from Ashai will eventually consume, consume the whole world, and that's how the world will end. 
And over the course of the series, we're going to meet at least, I think I can think of offhand, two or three people who have either been to a shy or are actually from a shy. Um, shall I quiz you for a second if you can name one of them for me, Lee? I, I got to tell you, <laughs> if you were, uh, if you made me a professor of A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, you wouldn't let me within 100 feet of any class about Essos. <laughs> <laughs> or any place yeah, good not call, good Westeros. Call. So you can try, but I'm I'm pretty if, sure I'm going to fail. Well, I'm going I'm to name three characters that we actually see over the course of the show. One of, I'm in with the major one. We will meet uh, Mary Mazder, who is the uh, witch that Danny will save. Oh, and, I knew that uh, one. In later episodes, and, re- and regret for the experience. She notes that she studied in a shy, notably under a very odd collection of people that includes a Westerosi meister, Marwin the Mage who was seemingly just happened to be in a shy at the time to teach her. I actually think that's the case. Uh, we also meet Quaithe in the, over the course of the show, the masked woman who is from a shy and will consistently advise Danny that she needs to go to a shy. It's a recurring thing in the books that Quaithe will actually show up in her dream, dreams to give her prophetic advice. One of the most repeated of which is that she tells her that to uh, touch the light, she needs to pass beneath the shadow. Um, needing to go into the shadow, uh, the shadow around a, uh, around a shy, which they refer to the mountains around that area for. And in terms of most major character, Melisandre herself is Melisandre of a shy, um, where she being a shadow binder, she uh, describes how she well, it is told of how she learned her various powers there. So, what is a shy? Honestly, it's a bit hard to say because we don't actually meet any character that has been there that is willing to talk about it in any degree of detail. From what we know about it, though, it is a haunting city that is existing constantly in shadow from the high mountains that that, um, rise above it. It's a city that doesn't make sense in innumerable ways. They describe it as being simply massive, that it's protected by these great walls that enclose an area that that could put all of the largest cities in the world combined inside it and still have room to spare. From Old Town, King's Landing... Uh, Volantis and numerous others all would fit and the walls still expand out beyond it. However, the population is no more than the size you would see in a relatively small market town in Westeros. And it's a population that is clearly in some ways not natural or at least not existing in a natural state. There are no children. They can't grow food. You can't drink the water. Even the animals there are toxic. They talk about it. They eat, only fools and shadowbinders would dare eat the mutant fish that swim in the water. The water itself, in the light of day, uh, is just a pitch black. At night, it radiates this kind of noxious green. The lands that go further beyond it are just endless collections of ruined and ghost cities. Despite all of this, it's a city that many people are constantly trying to get to from the various prophecies that Danny's told to about how she needs to complete her journey by going there, to merchants around the world that will, in an effort to complete the most valuable journey, a journey that will make them wealthy for life, they will often make a tour that will eventually end in a shy before coming back around to trade for such things as, I think, primarily amber and dragonglass, as well as little bits of magic. We, Many of the characters that are most associated with magic that we see over the course of the series have studied or trained there and are often very unwilling to describe exactly what they learned or saw. Though, as said, those who have received a full training are called shadowbinders, and we see very distinctly with Melisandre what the full scope of that might include or be. So it's a city that is 
just wrapped up in mystery. It is ancient. No one knows exactly how it emerged. No one knows exactly what goes on there or even how it runs. Just that it persists and always seems to, and that it marks effectively very much the edge of the world, to which characters would often say that they have been to all parts of the world is that they have been to the shadows beyond the shy. Um, it's a city that I would very much like to see at some point, but I am sadly reassured by the fact that, or sadly confident in the fact that we will never get to see it on the show. However, in the books, it's very possible. It seems like it could very much be part of about Danny's journey. If it isn't at this point, they've given us a hell of a lot of false foreshadowing that in some way her journey back to Westeros will see her heading west instead of east to make that journey possible. So... It is haunting, it is magical, it is a very much an oddity in what is, particularly at this point, a rational world. And it's just a sad thing the show didn't find a way to make it part of what we'll experience. Very good explanation of Ashai. Of course, this passes both chambers, but I can tell you the decision not to go to Ashai on the show fails both chambers dramatically in a bipartisan fashion, because I am right there with you. I really wanted to see this world on screen. Um, I think it's just a, it's sort of a bizarre explanation uh, of a place that George R. R. Martin just throws in the middle of the story. Um, I do like the little little hints about the people from Ashai, right? Like you hear that uh, nobody eats there, basically. There's no food, they can't grow food. But then you have the Melisandre explanation in Melisandre chapter, she didn't really eat either, right? So. What's she, going she's on? She's straight up. It's straight up implied that Melisandre is essentially a reanimated corpse in her own right and hasn't needed to eat in a long, long time. It raises lots of questions about who are described as the dark and solemn people of Ashai. They're almost universally described as dark and solemn, with the odd exception of Melisandre herself, who is almost purposely vibrant in a mocking way of that. Which we know is glamour. Um, yeah, yeah, very much a glamour. Yeah, no, this was good. Good book nerd bitching, Spencer. Yeah, maybe not. I, as I say, it's, good. it's hard to a certain degree with these initial seasons because I do adore them so much and they do stick to the books so well and even what changes they make have legitimate reasons for them. So you'll often see me here uh, associating references they make now with things that they later ultimately won't fulfill or pay out on. So Ashai is sadly a good example of that. Though, let's give them credit. It would have been hard. It's like a mix between, you know... Mordor and Hogwarts put in the middle of a put in the middle of a Song of Ice and Fire world. You kind of have to make everything fresh to make that look look that look make that look reasonable and happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, so this is a fun episode, Spencer. I'm enjoying season one. What do you think? Uh, I'm having a blast. I mean, as many times as I've watched this now, as many times as we've talked about it before, it is still a pleasure to go back through it. And as you said, because we have the perspective now of not only where everything the books have gone, but also where the show itself is finished up, or at least appears to be finishing up. Good. Okay, anything else you want to talk about from Season 1, Episode 2 of Game of Thrones, The King's Road? Uh, just that I'm going to very much enjoy talking, talking uh, Episode 3 with you here in a week's time. Okay, well, let's do a rundown of all the things we got going on at Mangum Talks, because it's a busy time. Uh, we now, Spencer, are up to four podcasts on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. Sir, I'm going to remind you, we have full-time jobs. What the hell are we doing? Having fun is what we're doing. So the first is the GOT Got Questions podcast. You just listen to it. You know it. You love it. Please, if you listen to us and you don't think we're completely terrible, rate us on iTunes. I'm learning um, little by little that when you're 
podcast hosts tell you to please rate them on iTunes because it helps, it really actually does. Like it, <laughs> it's not a joke. It really does help the podcast. So if you listen, you like us on iTunes or on Stitcher, uh, please rate us. Uh, much appreciated. We also have Mangum Reads. It's the Mangum Book Club with our very own Spencer and BJ. We have a new pod called Mangum Talks Hoops. That's with myself, my buddy, my pal, best man at my wedding, Levi Baxter. That first episode is out now. Finally, we have probably my favorite podcast that we do, Spencer, which says a lot about me, called Whiskey on the Weekends. And it's a, a time for <laughs> myself, Spencer, BJ, Levi, and anybody else we can corral into day drinking with us. We all drink the same whiskey. We all do a review of the whiskey, and we talk about whatever is on our mind. The only thing we can promise you is that there's not a lot of politics discussion. We keep it to relatively inane things. Episode two covered is chocolate overrated and how should you best eat apple pie so inoffensive podcast hard hitting material <laughs> inoffensive podcast we like to think it's a lot of fun check it out if you like us uh please rate us on itunes or stitcher you can also check us out at twitter at mangum talks you can check us out at facebook facebook.com slash mangum talks we're on reddit r slash mangum talks and finally you can always get our source material at www.mangumtalks.com if you want to contact us as i've mentioned multiple times in this podcast and i will continue to another podcast because i like to hear from the people upper right hand corner click contact us it'll send you to a form and it'll shoot your comment question or concern right to us thank you everybody spencer anything you want to add always a pleasure folks see you next week see you next week bye